This week, we welcome back Mike Nichols. He's the head of product at Elastic Security. He's going to talk about why Elastic is making endpoint security free and open. In our second segment, it's the security news. We'll talk about Amazon Alexa one-click at attack that can divulge personal data. A researcher publishes a uh, patch bypass for vBullet and Zero Day. Threat actors manage to control 23% of Tor exit nodes. A half a million IoT passwords were leaked. Hackers are exploiting a five alarm bug in networking equipment and a Zoom zero day flaw that allows code execution on Windows machines. In our final segment, we are going to air a pre-recorded interview with Michael Osroff. He's the CEO and founder of Vicarious to talk about vulnerability rich, contextually blind. All that and more on this episode of Paul's Security Weekly. This is Security Weekly. For security professionals, by security professionals. Broadcasting live from G-Unit Studios in Rhode Island, it's the show where exploits run wild, packets aren't the only things getting sniffed, and the cocktails flow steady. It's Paul's Security Weekly. Hackers attack systems that are not patched. You need protection, but virtual patching isn't working. That's why you go patchless. Topia analyzes, prioritizes, and remediates vulnerabilities before they're exploited. Even the zero days, all from one interface. Security gets better memory defense to complement endpoint strategy while improving overall vulnerability management and compliance. Adopt a hacker's mindset, eliminate vulnerability. Get your 30-day free trial at securityweekly.com forward slash vicarious. The question is simple. Have any of the systems on my network been compromised? The answer is harder than it should be. Enter AI Hunter. Active Countermeasures has automated and streamlined techniques used by the best pen testers and threat hunters in the industry to create AI Hunter, a network threat hunting solution that does the first pass of a hunt for you to identify systems that are most likely to be compromised and scores the results on a scale from 0 to 100. You can then research those systems in depth with AI Hunter. Focus your valuable time on the systems that need your expertise with AI Hunter. Sign up for a personal demo today at securityweekly.com forward slash ACM. The biggest problem in security that remains unsolved is flat networks inside the cloud and data center that allow threats to move laterally and compromise vulnerable targets. But micro-segmentation using traditional firewalls is too complex and time-consuming. There's a better approach, Edgewise Zero Trust Auto Segmentation. Edgewise is impossibly simple micro-segmentation. Using the identity of machines and software that are communicating, Edgewise offers the strongest protection that adapts automatically to changes. Protect any application in any cloud without any changes to your network by visiting Security weekly.com forward slash edgewise and welcome to the show but first let me introduce you to a man who's hotter than shakira's sweatpants that mr positor that, that was that was a sock puppet for those just <laughs> listening to the audio version welcome to paul security weekly it's episode number 662 being recorded on august 13th 2020 here in G-Unit Studios in Rhode Island, where I am the only host in G-Unit Studios in Rhode Island. The rest of the hosts are remote, starting with Mr. Jeff Mann. Welcome, Jeff. Thank you, Paul. You look so lonely. I, I wish I could be there with you. Jeff, did you wear the t-shirt yesterday? You mean later tonight? Yes. <laughs> I mean later tonight. You did Continuity. <laughs> Continuity. <laughs> That's brilliant. That's brilliant. <laughs> Mr. Lee Neely is here with us. Lee, welcome. Hey, great to be here. Ready for another fun show with some exciting news and uh, 
Maybe a few tweaks to the uh, wiki page here while I'm at. Yeah, while I'm, while you, I'm send, watching. Uh, it's my fault. Send me your story. I'll, it's anyway. I fixed I the. I reload the page. I fixed it. Okay. I'm. Yeah. Anyway, we'll talk about that later. Mr. Tyler Robinson is here with us. Tyler, welcome. Where's that bug bounty page? Uh, we can submit the the bugs for for the yeah. wiki. Yeah. Can I have to pay out some bug bounties? That's <laughs> my code. I want to go back to doing code that only I get to see. <laughs> <laughs> right? <laughs> it's my own bugs. Mr. Larry Pesce is here with us. Larry, welcome. Thank you, thank you. Just uh, seeing yep, the I'm bottom gonna... part of, uh, or top part of your t-shirt, because the bottom's cut off, it makes it look really strange, but it is a vintage i-hack.com shirt. It is. Like DEFCON like 18 vintage or something like that. It's awesome. Yeah. It's awesome. It still fits. That's good. That's good. Good sign. <laughs> Uh, let's see. Join the Security Weekly mailing list for webcast and virtual trading announcements. And to receive your invite to our Discord server, visit securityweekly.com. Hello? 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 Oh. Uh, visit securityweekly.com forward slash subscribe even and click the join the list button. Uh, no stranger to the show, Mr. Mike Nichols leads product management at Elastic Security. Uh, and of course, uh, worked over at Endgame as the head of product management. He manages the product management team and ensures the product team is constantly listening to customers, researching the market, and flogging developers to implement features. No, not that last part. I made that up. Uh, <laughs> deriving differentiated technology in order to choose the best strategic path for the company. You can find out more at securityweekly.com forward slash elastic. Mike, welcome. Hey, hey, uh, thanks, Paul. Good to be back. I was just joking. Mike does not flog his developers or any developers that I'm aware of anyway. No, I was going to talk to you about uh, putting your code in the open. You get some help on the, on, you know, if you open source that. So I, I'd be too embarrassed to open source it at this point. <laughs> 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 That's really what I think holds people back from open sourcing the code is embarrassment, pride. They from, better from deal the with seven the people that read it. Yeah, it's, it's funny. You, there is that barrier where people, uh, at first, when they when they join Elastic, are like, you know, have that. Oh, I got to go back and refactor code. It's like, trust me, like you said, most people aren't going to read it. It's right. you know, it's okay. Just yeah. be, you know, be proud of what you do. Right. All right. So, are you, uh, well, we'll talk about that, Mike. I wanted to first talk about um, a little bit of kind of a uh, business marketing kind of thing, like, but really focusing around because we've seen this consolidation, you know, of endpoint companies. And sim companies, as with Elastic, right? To put it in very basic terms, right? Um, mm -hmm. But you know, we've seen companies that traditionally do logging trying to get into endpoint, and endpoint companies moving into patching and moving into logging. Um, and, and really, the uh, where Elastic Security is today, I think, is really what represents many security companies and some like where they want to be, right? Because uh, I feel like you can't just be uh, an endpoint company, uh, you know, only to a certain point before you have to start expanding. Same thing for a company that's, you know, doing logging and event management. You got to start to expand. Uh, and the coming together of Endgame and Elastic, I think, really represents that, and actually predated a lot of the other uh, kind of mergers and expansions of other companies. Yeah, I think uh, you're right in the fact that most people realize pretty quickly that they need to tell the full narrative, right? They need mm -hmm. to kind of connect a full story, and that requires more than. Than just visibility into sort of the point of the product they may have purchased. You know, I, I worked for a network company before, and then a user behavior company, and then an endpoint company, and in every single one of those, it was how fast can we get to connecting to somebody else and integrating to tell that broader story of what else happened. Right. 
And I, I think what you're seeing is a race in the industry to maybe not to a security side, but more just, I think it's the realization that it's ultimately a race to be the data layer, the data fabric of the, uh, you know, sort of the, the operating system of the security team, right? Where all the information resides so that you can actually then tie those things together, whether like you mentioned, it's the vulnerability data, host-based data, you know, even certificate information and, and, uh, you know, health and status of servers, all, all should work together to kind of tell the story of what happened. Right. <clears throat> and it's interesting. We can string a bunch of things together um, but then we might have to write code and we know that my code doesn't have any bugs. <laughs> <laughs> Not and, at all. And other people don't change their stuff so you have to rewrite your integrations, right? And maintaining integrations is kind of a pain, no? Yeah, I mean, in, I mean, I think everybody's had to deal with this, right? Where you, the integration is great on launch and then one of the two products moves forward and then, you know, are they communicating? Are they moving, are they, are they, uh, so like you mentioned when the code is, uh, I'm not picking on you, but maybe the, cl the code is maintained by maybe one person by themselves. And, uh, you know, I'm sure it's, I'm sure it's fully documented really well, uh, you know, when it isn't something that's more, you know, owned through the community that has more people looking at it and contributing to it. Uh, you know, you're, you're kind of betting on somebody maintaining that thing for you. It sure, sure sounds like you're picking on Paul. Just, uh, <laughs> I'm trying to get into the bug bounty program. I challenge you to write code that doesn't have bugs. It's not, it's not easy. Um, <laughs> was well, hello say? world but also Never failed me yet that's right the one of the advantages of putting your code out there and open sourcing it right is if you get more people using it and you get more people doing the same integrations you can kind of compare notes have a community around it uh and i think have a better time like the worst situation you can be in i know like working in an enterprise or for a company is to integrate you know product A and product B and be like one of the only ones that has that integration because yeah. there's no one to lean on and there's no one to lean on either product team to go, can you fix that, right? Right, right. Well, and, and from an analyst perspective, it's like you don't, nobody else in the industry can talk to your team about what the, you know, what dots to connect. Mm -hmm. And we saw that we just recently, we actually opened up all of our rules development as well. So we, we moved all of our rule creation into a public GitHub repo where the team is actively developing, talking to the community. And I think that one of the drivers for that was that, you know, when I was a defender, and I'm sure you've all been through this too, you, you, at a certain point, you're sitting there saying, I know what I'm doing is not novel. <laughs> I know what I'm doing. Somebody else has done this. And like, I'm just repeating, uh, almost like burning resourcing, burning time, making the same firewall rule that I know 20 other people have done. Mm. Why can't I just look at this like community thing where that is so I can go work more on what, what matters for me and my business. Uh, so we think it, we think that's going to be pretty pretty good as well. Just to have this open community there, where we say, "Look, here's the stuff we're doing. Uh, contribute, you know, uh, and let's share that, so that we don't, you know, you don't have the same person writing the same rule in every different company." Well, and and I like it when it's centered around a project like security, like you're talking about, right? Because if it's too general, you end up with Stack Overflow, and then like everyone's answers are like sort of the solution you need, but not quite. Right. Whereas someone yeah. writes a rule for something and be like, oh, yeah, that's like in the wheelhouse. Like either that can solve my problem or it's close enough where, you know, can modify it slightly, perhaps. Yeah, exactly. We, we try to put some some uh, some gates or around things or some, uh, you know, to say, OK, what's here's sort of the buckets of, of areas, like, you know, host based security, of course, Windows, Mac, Linux, you know, network based security. We, we also focus on things like, you know, see sort of SaaS buckets. Let's work on authentication like Okta mm -hmm. or, you know, telecommunications like Zoom or something like that. Like, let's let's have these buckets where people can then contribute into uh, to sort of guide the, the community of where we want to focus. 
So, uh, Mike, the rules that you've uh, recently open source are those on the Elastic product side? Are they on the Endgame product side or some combination thereof? Yeah, it's a good question. It's, it's sort of a combination. Basically, everything, when we when we joined forces about 10, wait, almost 11 almost, months ago yeah, now. Yeah, about a year ago. Uh, yeah, almost. Yeah. We took everything that we had been doing in, in Endgame and, and built it then into the into the security solution, into, the, into what the, is known as a SIM, right? So we kind of converted a lot of our technologies into that KQL query language. Mm -hmm. And then that is what all those, tech, you know, 200 plus things is the things that we then opened up to the community where we said, okay, here's what they are. We And again, we develop with them as well. It isn't just, it isn't just blasting it out there and saying, come read it. We actually are actively in there. You can go talk directly to our team and, you know, ask questions. We've gotten actually awesome advice already and, and bug fixes. And it's been really cool to see people dive in uh, quickly on it. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, having a community, I think that speaks to Lee's earlier point, right? When you open source something, having a community around that is one thing, but having a community that's actually submitting pull requests and opening up issues and, and participating is yet a different thing. Yeah, yeah, it, it makes such a big difference when yeah, and, you know, if I were to write something and open it, probably nobody would read it, or or they, like you said, they'd make fun of it. But you having a community that actually contributes is is the big. That's the difference, right? And it's, it's the same thing we've had before. With you mentioned data earlier, like just you know, data integration, pulling pulling things in and normalizing. Like we have a, a huge amount of community feedback on that as well. And, and then we sort of have the outbound side, right? Pushing data out to systems where we have you know, connections to, to Jira or to ServiceNow or to IBM Resilience. But, you know, the community keeps adding more in there as well. Like they're, you know, adding community things to like the Hive or, or to other systems. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and so uh, it begs the question, Mike. So when I go to Elastic Security and I want the event management and I want the endpoint security, I'll call it as an all-encompassing term. Do I have like one management server now? where I could manage everything in one in one platform or is management still separate but events are still in, in a unified platform. Yeah, so that's the kind of the really exciting thing that's a, that some like we're we're about to, you know, kind of soon uh, TM here uh, about to announce is the kind of first chapter of our new endpoint. So the the endgame piece is still it's you know our elastic endgame solution is still its own management server mm -hmm. that has all the full features that we'd expect from endgame that you've seen, you know, the, the full deep EPP EDR. Mm -hmm. uh, but we what we worked on you know, since we got here, was building a thing directly into the Elastic stack itself. Actually, uh, you know, people have been asking us for a while. We have a lot of things like these, these Beats connectors, mm. uh, but people wanted to essentially manage those. So we actually, uh, the company's created this Elastic agent, which is basically a, a central installer. You install one thing, and then you can kind of select anything you want to add and instantly add it into the endpoint, like a central orchestration. And one of the things we've added is endpoint security. So it's a portion of the endgame technology is now uh, or is going to very soon be uh, in this um, in this offering where we will be able to you know if anybody can take that single architecture hit install Elastic Agent add endpoint security to it and then and then have a portion of the endgame capabilities and of course that's the beginning right the next step is to keep taking this sort of what what exists here this big bucket of endgame things and funnel them into the the mm -hmm. new offering until it's you know the the they're equal or gotcha. hopefully better gotcha gotcha how My, does the configuration ahead, or orchestration of that uh, and management work? Is that using things like uh, XML or group policy or is that all through the uh, kind of the, the centralized management uh, server for, for lack of a better term? Yeah, it's a good question. The, the first iteration, you know, we're just launching this in beta to start. The agent is is managed from the actual Kibana interface. So you set your own, you know, so you, you set your own configuration. If you're familiar with Beats, 
it sort of it makes a UI layer on top of what was the YAML config files that existed in all the different beats we had. And so we have this new area of the application that's called or ingest management, where you select you know the agent. Uh, it you know you can install it on any OS you want, and then you basically can say, okay, add you know uh, nginx logs, and we'll collect those, or add you know whatever else you want to collect of all the sort of beats and modules we had, uh, and then. As you talked about, you know, definitely there's things that we want to build out in the future, which is you know tighter integration to your existing policy that you have through Active Directory or some other things. Mike, explain what Beats are and how they're integrated in all the different products. Yeah, Beats are pretty cool. They're, they're uh, you know people are familiar with sort of the Elk stack, the mm -hmm. uh, Elastic Logstash, and Kibana. And Logstash was, uh, you know, is is this is this ingest management piece that allows us to kind of pull data in, do normalization and standardization, uh, but it required you like sending stuff to it. It was basically a middle broker, right? Mm -hmm. And so what we did, what we started to build out was a way to actually collect the data if you weren't able to push it from the systems you wanted to push it from. So we created these things called Beats. Uh, Beats you can basically think of as lightweight data shippers, and there's many for many different kinds of things, and they work in our different solutions. So you have data shippers for metrics, data shippers for you know AWS CloudTrail data, and for GCP and Azure, and you know data shippers for security solution software. You know we could pull in you know, CrowdStrike or Microsoft ATP, all kinds of different data types. Do we'll I need collect. an agent on the system that's going to run the Beats to collect the data and send it back? It's yes, possibly, or you could put a beat in one location and stream sort of syslog data to it, and it will then take that and normalize it. But basically, think mm. of agent as like that that normalization store, right? Where right. it's going to use. We have this thing we released uh, openly about two years ago now called ECS or Elastic Common Schema, which is that normalization framework. Mm -hmm. You know, one thing we realized, and I'm sure you've been through this as well, like when you start to build, when you want to build a rules language or you want to build security. You know, some product names it IP.address, somebody else names it source.ip, somebody says source underscore address. So you end up having these rules with like these crazy nested things. It's like, well, if it says source this or source.address this, or so, and, and it just doesn't scale, it's very brittle in your technology. So normalizing that data to make that, you know, whatever comes in, I'm going to then call it source.ip is, is critical. So we created that schema first, that open schema called ECS. And then the point of these uh, these beats modules that are now moving into this agent piece we talked about is to collect that data, normalize it for customers automatically. So you know, think about the workflow is literally install an agent, say you want nginx logs, and then you're done. Like mm. we will collect them, we right. will normalize them, we'll pull them into the product, and then the rules that work on nginx logs will just work. Uh, so it's it's the idea is simplicity on the data collection and simplicity on the actual actions on that data too. And then so like if I put a uh, a box or something on my network and it's sniffing packets there's a beat that can analyze those do netflow right there's exactly exactly yeah, we stuff. have a we have basically packet beat there or mm -hmm. or like i said you install agent and add the packet kind of piece to it to pull in that data so yeah the, the hope is uh you know almost any data piece you'd want to collect we have an easy way to automate it you know the it's it's the most challenging part, I think, of anybody who starts to set up an architecture for big, big analysis, I hate big data, but this analysis of data, right, the actioning things, is that, like, what does my data architecture look like? And we want to simplify that by saying, look, just don't worry about that. You install the system, you install a thing and say, collect this data, and then we'll take care of all the, ba all the difficult pieces in the background. And the cool thing about this new release is that, you know, like I said, they used to be uh, very configurable and very powerful YAML files, but you had to know what to, what to modify. And now it's a real simple UI that's just like one click, you know, click this thing and then it works. I gotcha. And we added endpoint security. <laughs> so, and the endpoint security, is that the full like end game uh, EDR type solution in there? It's going to be at some point. Yeah. To start, it's, you know, the, it's, it's the beginning, right? It's our first chapter. So what we've, what we've added to start is, um, 
deep data collection. So the, one of the cool parts of the Endgames platform that we proved out in some of these MITRE tests was the type of data, sort of the fidelity of data. So the fact that we collected kernel level information on Mac, Windows, and Linux. So that is now ported over into this new offering. So we collect that same type of information. And you sent it over uh, with beats? Is that, is that how it works essentially? Like the, yeah, basically and, it's, yeah. it's part of the, it's built into agents. So you don't have to think about it. If it's a, you just, yeah. you just say, turn on endpoint security and we'll collect that data for you. Uh, and then again, it's mapped into ECS. And because it's in ECS, the 200 plus rules we have in, in the SIM just work. They just, they just it's work all, all things. it did is normalized across all those 200 different exactly. collectors exactly. with the end game uh, agent, yeah. for lack of a better term, uh, in there as well. Yep, exactly. And then if you want to turn it on, I think the kind of the, the thing that's brand new to Elastic users is a prevention component. We took the same anti-malware model uh, that we were running on the Endgame platform on on Windows and Mac OS, and put that into this new agent. So if you want to, you can turn on detection or prevention, and we will then use that exact same model and that same you know sort of validated uh, preventions can take place in this. And the whole idea is, uh, you know, I, I talked about this at Black Hat. Was, was this this? Uh, it's almost like security is very classist, right? We have this, you know, it's like the Fortune 2000s can be protected because they can afford it and they can, yeah. they can handle the complexity and they have the people. But the, you know, the 7 billion plus people and the you know, billions of devices that are getting compromised are leading to this, you know, mountain of the, you know, the sort of weaponization that comes in, right? The, the, the things that run the campaigns, the things that can do the DDoSing. And so we have to protect everything. And the only way to protect everything no one's, you know, you can't charge enterprise prices. So you have to have a, a, at least commoditize some piece of it. And so with this, with this offering, it's in our default distribution. And what that means is it's free. So we've, we've sort of, uh, you know, put out a free SIM. We put out a free, you know, this free endpoint security, including malware prevention, uh, you know, the free rules that'll run on top of that for some advanced detection. And the point is like, again, to kind of the, the rising tides here, like, you know, it lifts all ships. So all of us, if all of us get more secure, there's a, there's an altruistic component, which is that, of course, we can help protect the world's data, which I think is awesome, and we take pride in that. And the selfish component is that if if everyone else is more secure, then the the aperture of the attacks, you know, narrows, right? There's mm. less systems right. to to operationalize to attack uh, our business, right? So, but you're not giving away everything for free, right? Do I, like, do I, I don't get do I get the full, uh, you know, end, what no, was, no, yeah. So agent, there is right? there's, there's of course uh, tiered layers. So that what yeah. the, there's a there's a what we call our default distribution, which is you know free to use. Uh, you can you can go to cloud and get a 14 day trial on it in our cloud as well, which has that sort of suite of capabilities: data collection, the alerting, uh, the the malware prevention, uh, and then there's a there's layers on top where we can add capabilities. So you mentioned the end game platform, for example, mm -hmm. the full EPP EDR capabilities are a paid capability that's on top of that that right. layer. But I get some uh, basic EDR and some malware protection now for free, along with the free Elastic platform, correct? Exactly, exactly. And I think that the, what, why that matters, especially from a community perspective, is you talked about earlier, like people, you know, we want to build this community that contributes to our rules, for example. Mm -hmm. Well, if the only people that have access are people that paid for it, that's a pretty small community. If the whole world can get access and mm -hmm. you can all use the data and all write rules against it, it really broadens our ability to have more people contributing to protections. Which again is that more people contributing, the better it is. The more people that write connectors, uh, it just really it's a really healthy community. If there's a layer, and it's not that uh, that sort of freemium model, like we don't have a cap at over you know after after the first hundred preventions we stop, or it's you know we insert we insert a toolbar in your browser, right? Like it's it is truly free. It's like the, these capabilities are free, they're available, and we we think you know the sort of the business model that we is that will introduce you to Elastic. You'll get excited about it. You know, we provide a lot of value to you in that free model, but our hope is 
you say, hey, you know what? I like this and I actually want to turn on the next thing and then you'll become a customer. Uh, so, you know, we think that, you know, we can kind of build that trust and, you know, bring you on board with us as a customer by providing some really good value in, in the free layer. So, Mike, today I can go Is to the website and I can stand this up for my organization on its own without paying anything or without a trial, right? I can get Elasticsearch, Kibana, Beats, Logstash, the uh, malware uh, prevention, and all that is free. Yep. Yeah, you go to elastic.co slash security. Uh, you can launch it in cloud for 14 days for free now, or you can download it and put it on your server and it's free forever. That's awesome. Is that, does that business model seem to be successful currently for Elastic? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't want to speak too much to financials because uh, we're a public company, and I'll probably get yelled at. But mm-hmm. you know, we, uh, you know, we we put out our quarterly earnings, and everything seems to be going really well. I'm I'm excited by it. I'll tell you that. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, I think it's it's the it's this idea. You know, w- what's different about the the model is that you know I've worked in other companies that are the classic sort of top down. Uh, you know, engage a sales rep, start a conversation, and those are successful. We have those people, of course. But this, you know, it's amazing when you look at sort of who becomes an elastic customer. The majority of people that become Elastic customers were using Elastic and even proved it in their own sort of proof of concept before they even called us because they have that access. You know, we'll get calls from really large companies that say, hey, you know, we, we had a problem with our legacy SIM scaling when we added, you know, let's say EDR data to it. So we downloaded your stuff and tried it and holy crap, it was fast and it worked. And so now can we talk to you about how to architect this for our, our company? And it's, so it's, it's kind of amazing when you have uh, practitioners get excited and, and sort of fired up by your technology because they can get their hands on it and then have the business conversation it is, I, I really, it's, a, it's, you know, the, the past decade of my life, this is much better than the other way around, which was you get the executive or the business layer excited, then they have to go down to the practitioners and make them try to use the software. So it's really, it's this, we, we, you know, this sort of bottom up model where we get people to use and, and sort of love our stuff. And then, you know, if, if it works for them, contribute or, or to us or become a customer, I think is really successful. Mike, on, on the downloads page at the very bottom, have you seen the image that's there? It's a downloads page at the bottom. I'll take a look. Uh, it's, he's got a, a hatchet or, or in, but two axes and a pipe, and, a, and it kind of looks like you, like with the beard, if you had longer hair. <laughs> it's actually kind of funny. <laughs> the very bottom of the downloads page. It's awesome. Oh yeah, yeah. It is. Uh, That's I see, not I, you, though. I, I, it's not me. No, not yet. I still my my COVID hair is getting there, but it's gotcha. not quite as long as that is that uh, that gentleman yet. It's a really funny image. <laughs> That's really cool. That is a lot of functionality to give away for free, though. I feel like. Am I overstating yeah, I mean, that, or is <laughs> like I mean, you know better than almost anyone, right? Yeah, it's definitely a question we get uh, of like you know, where's the catch, right? Where's the hook? Mm. And I think you know the. If you ultimately, right, I mean, Elastic, we are a search company at our core, right? We, we did that first, which is like the hard problem of searching data really fast. And then we're layering kind of use cases on top. So observability, right? Looking at, you know, searching across for, for servers that have challenges, things like that, right? And enterprise search, like shove your Gmail data somewhere because you can't, or, or Slack data, because searching in Slack is maybe not as great as you'd like it to be. So search there. And now we add security as well. And I think what we find time and time again is that uh, you know, the, the, we get a, a, bre- a broad set of users that, that use us. And then, you know, there's functionality that just makes sense for an enterprise once they want to adopt it like more broadly. And they go, you know what, you know, I, I, I need, uh, for example, I really want seamless and simple SSO authentication across my, my company, right? And so maybe that's in a, in, a, in a pay tier. So I'll become a customer to get access to that, you know, simple orchestration or simple uh, automation. So there's these decision point layers that happen when a customer goes, okay, now that I want to deploy this 
more broadly, I need this set of features and we move up into this next tier. Uh, but we try to do it in a way where, you know, if you take this and put it in your home lab, like you're going to be right as rain and never have to pay us. And, and that's okay, right? It's, it's okay that you're successful. We, we, we like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if you decide that your business needs more, then great. Let's talk about how we can become, you know, a partnership there. And now the, the malware prevention is just Windows and Mac uh, that's available for free? For right now, yeah, yeah. We've been looking into in, into Linux, but uh, yeah, it's Windows and Mac, and it's a signer, It's the same model it's on, on Endgame, so it's that signatureless uh, malware model. So it's, you know, uh, we can talk more about if you want to talk about how it works, but I mean, you, you probably know more than I do about that. A lot of memory protection and things like that, right? Uh, not yet, no. Memory, memory protection and some of our advanced, you know, sort of behavioral ransomware protections are, uh, are capabilities that are still in Endgame and not yet into the... Gotcha. Uh, this new thing and then you know and who knows when they come in they might not be part of the that free tier either right which is right. the beginning launch so but uh but we hope that there's a lot, enough functionality where people get excited about it you know people even even if i mean just the simple fact that if you wanted to collect host-based information and see what you could detect right see like okay why well, miter has all this stuff i want to check out like what could i find mm. well the easiest way to collect it is you just you can turn this on with one click and now we're getting all that data so you can even ignore the malware prevention and just get the data collection and the rules on top the the adversary rules that are mapped to miter and and see if that works for you i really is, I, I really like the, this uh, uh, just really quick Tyler. i like this for if you're a security professional and you're trying to protect uh windows and mac machines at home this is real, really good suite to like install and just see what you can get, right? And then think about how that applies to your enterprise. Because mm-hmm. I really believe, I mean, if you're going to use this in the enterprise as part of your daily operations, you probably should be paying for it, uh, right? But use it at home for free. Like my, I talk about my kids all the time. Like it's their mission in life to like hack around any protections I'm on and get infected oh, by yeah. everything. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I already have this running on my kids' systems for sure for that right. same reason. But yeah, and, and, and even on Linux, I mean, we do Linux protections, but they're mostly like you talked about. They're, they're aimed at uh, uh, not malware, but they're aimed at sort of the built-in uh, Linux right. componentry that, you know, they're more adversary behavior focused. And, and of course, a ton of stuff that's focused on like cloud configuration changes, things like that. Right. Like my, my son was locked out of the computer with the management software. And I said... If you guys like bypass this management software, I will be so proud. My middle son's like, "Wait, you're not gonna be mad?" I'm like, "No, no, no, no. <laughs> I'm gonna be really proud." And like, I no sooner turn my head and turn back, and my oldest son is on the computer. Like, there's there's nothing, and I notice my wife's phone uh, next to the computer. He had found my wife's phone, picked it up, unlocked my wife's phone, gone into the management software, unblocked himself, and then proceeded oh, to wow. use the computer like That's without awesome. even like batting it. I'm like. Dude, yeah. I am so proud. And I'm like, sweetie, we need to have a conversation about OPSEC. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Let's talk about why you, why, right. why can our son get in your phone. Yes. <laughs> yes. Sorry, That's Tyler. Awesome. I, was, I was curious what the, uh, what the timeline is kind of looking like for the kind of full integration or assimilation of, of in-game into, into all this plan. Yeah, it's a good question. And we get it a lot, um, you know, uh, we don't know exactly how fast. I mean, but the team is already running really quick, which is awesome. Uh, but we've been telling people, you know, it's it's gonna be it's gonna be a while. I mean, Endgame had a ton of functionality that uh, is still really powerful and really successful for customers. We're still, you know, actively developing on that Endgame solution for our customers. Uh, and as we pull, you know, pull features over, uh, we're kind of looking at 
what's the best thing to benefit the sort of broader user base and how fast can we go? You know, of course we need some of that R in the response. So adding some of the response actions quickly or is definitely a priority, things like host isolation, for example. But, you know, realistically, probably expecting at least like a, a year to 18 months probably to, to kind of get those capabilities ported fully over um, in, into that solution. But, you know, the, the cool thing is, is that because Endgame does so much, I mean, any, you know, EPP in general, right? Because it's such a broad category that along the way, that you know the solution might have enough capabilities that it solves your needs you might not need you know this additional piece that's coming later right you might have enough coverage with what you have today to be able to move over to the new solution that's pretty awesome now does elastic have a bug bounty program or a responsible disclosure set up already yeah that's a good question we do uh we do work with uh boy i'm forget the vendor now i think it's it's one of the major two major vendors for uh for bug bounties i'm just not sure if it's how public that that is i know that uh, well, we definitely do some active active work there, so that's something I can get some, I can get back to you on. Yeah, you guys have been always uh, open to working with researchers on not not just maybe a bug bounty program, but a- anything having to do with the product. Uh, oh, for sure. Yeah, we get we get tons of great feedback uh, through uh, you know through discuss forums and through our open Slack, you know our public community Slack channels, and and also through GitHub. Uh, I'm not sure. I need to definitely double check about the actual bug bounty itself, but we do mm. get some good information in from from people about things that they find that we need to kind of dig into and work on. Mm. That's awesome. So, Go Mike, ahead. are you Jeff. ready for your your PCI, PCI question of the week? I knew it was coming. I, yeah, I'm excited about it. <laughs> <laughs> well, and this is again, this is not meant to be a stumper. I'm just curious. Uh, to what degree you guys are, are even looking into stuff like this. Uh, Visa, you know, the credit card company, they published yep. a, 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 a special security alert last month. I guess my first question is, are you guys even aware of that? Because I don't know how they publish it. You know, I think they mostly send it out to their merchants, but, you know, it's a public document. Heard of it? That's my first question. So the good news about being uh, the head of product is that uh, they don't trust me to do those things. So I can say okay. the, our research team might have heard of it, but uh, I personally have not, no. So what I'm curious about is um, the, the, the security alert has to do with Visa was doing some forensics work for a breached, you know, one of their breached merchants, and they uncovered some variants of Pretty old malware. I mean, malware that dates back to 2012, which I think might be some of the malware that was used at, like, you know, the Target breach, the Home Depot mm, breach, okay. and others. Um, and and you know, so you know, forget the dates and times and everything. I'm I'm curious, you know, in in terms of malware, this particular my type of malware is, is what they call memory scraping malware mm-hmm. and they and they target this that that special type of endpoint in the PCI world which is the point of sale or right. to the late person the cash register so i'm just curious if you guys uh, and if you don't know the answer offhand you know we'll we'll, we'll wait your response um, i'm trying to find the the names of the yeah, well, I mean, while you're pulling them up, I know we do. We have a, a whole portion of our endpoint team is dedicated specifically to memory, and you know, uh, I think we could talk a little bit. About, at least I can talk about what we do on the end, end game side. It's okay. You know, we try not to chase uh, each new attack, or, or like we don't really put out rules per exploit or per attack that comes out. We really mm-hmm. try to kind of do these more broad, 
kind of technique focused ones. So a good example is the way that we handle, uh, you know, process injection. We have a few different sort of methods that are doing kernel level management or monitoring of each threat execution. And then right. during threat execution, we'll actually, you know, sort of you know, millisecond pause, uh, check some behaviors to under to determine if it's actually the thread is, you know, is it backed by a process on disk and some other kind of key metrics that would help us score mm -hmm. that thing. And then we can actually uh, allow or deny that actual threat execution from happening. So some of these memory-based attacks, uh, you know, can be prevented with those. Now, this one in particular, mm -hmm. I have to actually check the, the test and see. Well, I don't know if you have access to your Discord server. I, I dropped the uh, the Visa alert in there. I can certainly get it to you. Um, oh, nice. The, no, that's great. Three... If you have it there, hopefully the team, I'm actually looking right now on our GitHub repo. Like the cool thing about the community is like we had just, I'm looking here, community just dropped like a, the meow attack uh, rules in there. They like, they, they respond pretty quickly to stuff that is in the, in the news that they're looking at. But, uh, but that so one, one of the... I can actually dig in. So the names of the three variants that they saw, one is Alina, A-L-I-N-A, P-O-S. Okay. One's called Dexter, D-E-X-T-E-R. And the third one was called Tiny Loader. And the Visa announcement actually has indicators of compromise, what files are created, how they all work. It's got all oh, the nice. things that you would drop into signatures and, and all that kind of stuff. So it's, there's actually a lot of cool information. The, the final phase of the question, what I, I'm curious about, what, what intrigued me about these, uh, this write-up of these variants is that for data exfiltration, they were using DNS tunneling. And I think we talked about that, Paul, mm -hmm. on mm -hmm. a show in the last couple of weeks. Um, Open-ended question, you know, what do you guys do in, uh, or do you guys do anything that could catch something like, you know, weird traffic, like, uh, DN, you know, data that's going out over DNS? Yeah, that, that's actually a really good one that we actually, we, we demonstrate that uh, a lot because it is, like you mentioned, kind of a, a challenge for people. Uh, mm -hmm. One of the things that happened with Elastic, boy, three years ago now, I think, we uh, we joined forces with this company called Prelert, which was a uh, machine learning-based company that was focused, sort of beginning to focus in that UEBA space. And what we did is we kind of repackaged that as a generic machine learning user interface for Kibana. So you can go in and, and play around with that now. Uh, and then mm -hmm. when security came out, we actually you know, bundled in or built in a bunch of these, you know, I think we have now 30-some-odd models that are running across that that formatted data, and one of them happens to be exactly what you're saying. It's actually looking for uh, for malicious DNS or for uh, DNS tunneling, I should say. So I'm actually look, trying to pull the rule up now so I can give you more information about it. But yeah, it's cool. it's specifically uh, let's see. Yeah, we, so we do DNS tunneling and rare DNS uh, are two separate models that come prepackaged that can run and uh, they're unsupervised. So they actually will you know learn on the data that's in your environment, and then and then you can set the threshold that you want to fire on. Uh, and, and kind of pull in. So I just yeah. want to say, Mike, this might be the first time all year I've heard the term UEBA. And I feel like three years ago, that's like all we were talking about. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's, funny I actually talked to somebody earlier about like things that don't excite me. And that was actually a topic. I'm like, that doesn't get <laughs> Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I feel like we were excited about that for a little while. And then I w we kind of all agreed that it was a feature and it took a couple of years before it basically was not exciting at all. Yeah, it was, a, it was a feature masquerading as a product for a long time that yep. I think merged into product offerings for sure. But yes, I mean, in this yeah. case, I think, you know, we'd have to run it, but I'm, I would hope that uh, that, that rule would, would find that for you. Cool. Okay. And uh, now, we, now we just have to figure out how to sell your stuff to a PCI customer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, back, I think I told you this last time, back in the Endgame days, we did a uh, coal fire audit and uh, yep. and it actually yep. came back and we had a, 
you know, we, we had a whole report that talked about how we could, uh, you know, help a customer achieve PCI uh, with the PCI mm-hmm. DSS the version 3.2 requirements. Uh, specifically, we helped with requirement five, and I'm looking through here to see what the other one is. I think there's a couple ones that we we helped, mm-hmm. but I'm sure there's more now as we have a more like a broader set of capabilities. So we we've been right. talking about you know should we engage a a company like that again to come in and help? We we did one for this, and we did one for HIPAA as well, uh, just to just to provide some of that information for our users. Gotcha. Funny how we had a very similar. Um uh, coal fire report done at Tenable, and I'm pretty sure our VP of marketing was your VP of marketing. Uh, <laughs> it's, yes. a, it's, a, it's a small world, I think. That- <laughs> yeah. Jeff, you're looking like very majestic. Yeah, I, I, I was going to say he uh, looks like it? very uh, Obi Wan Kenobi ghost. It did. <laughs> yes, he's a Force <laughs> ghost. I should. He was saying earlier on my Jedi room. So I just, as it turned back, I was like, "Wow, it's really uh, it's powerful now." Yeah. <laughs> the sun's the sun's hitting the window just right. So. Uh, you can strike me down and I'll become more powerful than ever before. That's it. <laughs> Don't cross the streams. Help me, Mr. Jeff Mann. I must pass my PCI compliance assessment. That's really funny. <laughs> That's oh. awesome. All um, right, I'll let you off the hook. I, Thanks. You pa- you passed the PCI audit? No, not not the PCI ah, drilling. Don't say that word. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I know it's uh, a it, it's Paul, one of those it's things. You find it funny you should mention that, Paul. I know that we're, we don't you know, do the hack naked T-shirts anymore necessarily. An assessment is too long a word, but I kind of want an audit naked T-shirt. Audit naked, yes. We still do the hack naked stuff. Well, we usually well, do if, them at conferences, but... We have, if we ever go to DEF CON. Again, yeah, if and yeah the right. Oh, boy, I hope they come back. This, this last round of uh, Black Hat really made me miss in-person conferences. Yeah, I, I agree. I agree. Um, Mike, re- really quick... Um, uh, bring us up to date on some of the uh, more advanced uh, protections in the endpoint product. I mean, because we still see so many vendors doing endpoint stuff. We see a, a lot of vendors taking various different takes on how they'll help you prevent against a threat that you don't know about. Um, I feel like before it was Elastic Endgame, that Endgame was really ahead of the curve in terms of preventing those attacks. Well, what's happening more recently, especially the stuff that's got you excited? Yeah, well, thanks for that. Um, yeah, there's some really cool things that we've been doing. Uh, we, I think I talked about this last time I was on, maybe about it coming, and now it's actually out, which is great, which is one of the things that we realized, and I think, uh, you know, boy, was it a year or 18 months ago now when atom bombing happened that really brought this out, where uh, process injection was, was, this atom bombing technique was process injection using an API that we hadn't, you know, the industry hadn't recently you know, thought about being mm-hmm. an API we could use. And we ran into this challenge where we had to then update our kernel driver to look for this new API. And then that took development cycles and QA cycles. And so it put a, it put a gap, right, in, in how fast we could respond. So the team put a lot of work into, like, how could we get better at rapid response to, to these new things? And, Mike, and I really just want to add some color at, at that point right there because yeah. the instant you try and implement a new feature and, and or fix a bug. But in this case, you're trying to implement a new feature and you start changing things in your code. I know this very well recently, right? You got to go back and test everything to make sure you haven't broken an older detection, like in your case, right? You changed mm-hmm. process injection to detect the new API and the new method of doing it. But now you got to go back and make sure all the other ways you were checking for process injection are still valid and that you're checking for them, right? Otherwise, you're going right. to introduce another bug trying to protect you. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. Well, and, and because we're, you know, 
it, when you have to be in the kernel to do prevention properly, you only you not only have prevention detection or prevention regression testing, but also performance and application deconfliction testing, right? Because right. as you modify to something, it's like, oh, wait, let's make sure we work with this suite of things and, and don't yeah, impact. Let's the make user sure we don't and, crash know, the, anything else that's running. Yeah, exactly. On the I mean, that, that, yeah. I mean, I don't. We won't name names, but some of these legacy vendors that gave Endpoint a bad name because it would spin up your CPU and you wouldn't, you know, your you would overheat your laptop. Mm-hmm. Uh, we don't want to do that, obviously. But uh, so the team. You know, was really thinking about how can we get in front of this. We released this capability we call uh, MBM or Malware Behavior Modeling, and what it basically became is a layer. It's a it's sort of a shim layer on top of what we're doing in the kernel that allows us uh, almost this. So we can deliver obviously new updates, new rules. You know, whenever, right? Uh, you know, a, a sort of just deliver them down to customers and protect them. This actually and it allows us to hook different APIs almost on demand. Basically, like mm-hmm. you know, we we if we. We realized, for example, that this new technique requires this new API visibility we didn't have. This new model that we have, excuse me, that we have, lets us actually send down the rule and the new kind of, you know, go hook this thing. It will actually go do that, grab grab the right data, run the rule and, and, and enact that prevention that we need. Uh, and it allowed us to respond really quickly to some some new capabilities and new attacks that we've seen in the wild. So that, that's been from a Maybe it doesn't have like as, as uh, great of a, a big foot, foot stop presence as like ransomware, but the capability allows us to be really fast in that rapid response for customers and ensure that we protect them against new problems. And that, that was a big deal for us. And with that, you know, came all the other pieces we can do. Like we can we can respond and add to, you know, uh, screen captures and and things like that, just using that API visibility that we have. Uh, so that was that was one. Uh, one I'm excited about now is obviously rants. I mean, we just saw the news right about uh, about Garmin and, and others. Mm-hmm. I mean, like ransomware just isn't stopping, and so we have a couple more. Uh, you know, we have a few already layered ransomware techniques because you, we can't fail there, right? So there's like three layers of things that we want to make sure work before it hits the bottom layer. Right. We have a couple more we're working on now as well to sort of add to the stack. We just want to. We really want to throw in as much. Uh, belt and suspenders approach to ransomware protection as possible. So there's a couple we're looking at now that we think are pretty exciting that hopefully will come out this calendar year that will just further enhance and just be additional protections to the, to what we're tracking on ransomware because that is that is like you mentioned such a you know it, it's unfortunately so impactful uh, to what we're what we're seeing. Um, yeah, I think that's. I mean, uh, those are sort of the big ones that jump out at me. Obviously, you you brought up earlier sort of the lack of the malware prevention side on Linux, and that's always been a, an interesting one for us. Is like how much malware is really out there on Linux, but it is something that people need uh, from a, both a compliance perspective as well as you know there is some things we should just block. And so, looking at how to at least cover that for down for users is something we've been looking at as well. Yeah, you know, with Linux malware, it's mostly just wrapping built-in tools, right? To- do what it needs to do, right? I have a follow-up PCI question, and, and oh, this please. is strictly yeah, strictly your opinion. What do you? Uh, anybody can answer this. What do you think of Clam AV? Uh, oh, so yeah, I, I was going to say like clams are awesome uh, this yeah, time of year. Yeah, and yeah, I, gonna, I, gonna I prefer mussels, but so. and, uh, not and oysters, for Larry because Larry's allergic to shellfish. But for the rest of us, clams are awesome. Yeah, baked stuff. Yeah, I mean, I don't want to besmirch any other, anyone else who's building uh, building antivirus software. I think anybody who provides a, a way to get access to software that is uh, available to more people than t- in classic enterprise is great. So, you know, I think they're doing good work there. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say that, you know, we obviously took a different approach. Clamiv classically is like very focused on the the known bads. Uh, they you right. know and, and and grew into the unknowns, but known bad is still critically important. So I shouldn't knock that. I'm not trying to knock that. Uh, we we try to 
add that layer in that is also the unknown side of that, you know, typically focus on models, which is why we've been, you know, sort of the debate in Linux for us is do we, do we go down the route of actually building a model to find malicious things on Linux when the sample set is so small, is it even worth it? Or should mm -hmm. we kind of change the way we think about this and actually, you know, go, go to a signature based approach like a clam AV would do. I mean, yeah. with, with one of our stories for the week with the uh, with NSA and uh, I think it was Homeland Security, someone uh, released the the latest APT twenty eight or Fancy Bear or whatever, uh, and their whole new malware kit is based on uh, Linux and new Linux heuristics. So, mm -hmm. That's yeah, I mean, well, the, the unfortunate thing is that this uh, you know the world events that have they made so many companies rush to cloud because they had to, right? Because you know, you're not going to build some massive VPN to backhaul everything. So they're all rushing to cloud. And uh, I think we're, we're seeing an exposed surface in you know Linux servers that are hosted in AWS and Google and, and Microsoft. Well, to rephrase the question and make it more generic, and, I'm, and I certainly didn't mean, mean to disparage or intend anyone to, dis to disparage Clam AV in any way, yeah, you mentioned requirement five in PCI, which is the antivirus, anti-malware requirement. There's a, um, a a statement within the requirement that says something to the effect of, you know, run antivirus on all systems that are commonly affected by, you know, malicious software. And so in the early days, you know, people weren't doing anything on any kind of Apple, Mac OS type of system because they didn't get vulnerabilities. And then there were a lot yeah. of variants of... of in those days, it was more Unix than Linux, but, you know, admins were, were quick to say, oh, you know, that's, that's a Windows thing. That doesn't affect us. And, and the rule of thumb had been, well, if there's an antivirus available for your platform, you probably should run it. And, and Clam AV came along, I don't know how many years it's been out, but I remember, you, you know, encountering it with my customers, you know, seven, eight years ago anyway. Uh, and, and I had a customer recently that was running it and, you know, it's like, I've never really asked anybody how it works. I mean, it's, it's there and it's great. And, you know, I checked the configuration, but I, I never really thought about or looked into how effective is it, you know, uh, yeah. or in, or ineffective as the case may be. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't see, I think I'm trying to think if I saw them pop up into, uh, you know, we, we use AV comparatives as the third party lab for our anti-malware uh, validation. I think they're in there. I have to go check, but I mean, in general, kind of our approach to people who are already running antivirus. And I, I think also, I think PCI, I don't know if they have yet. I know that the debate has been, can they change the verbiage to instead of saying antivirus, say anti-malware to incorporate things that are maybe not necessarily signature based. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, in, in general, we, we make a big effort on our side to make sure we run alongside other uh, antivirus products well, because you know if you're already running it, uh, there's no no reason not to have defense in depth. If you want to replace stuff, that's great. We'll ha we'll, ha we'll happily do that too. But in any uh, in almost all companies, right, you're gonna have layered stuff. So we do you know testing with you know running alongside McAfee, running alongside Microsoft Defender, uh, running alongside things like Semantic and other. These are things you commonly would see in an enterprise already, uh, because mm -hmm. you know why not? At least, at least through one audit cycle, <laughs> run both, and then when the auditor's there, you can ask your auditor, "Hey, is it okay if I have this versus this?" And and so make that decision, you know, with them collectively. But uh, yeah, I think running running both, I think, would be fine. I mean, we test it to be fine. So, uh, gotcha. but hopefully, hopefully, you won't need to soon when we add anti malware into Linux. Yeah, your your little offhanded comment there. Um, it's 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 one of the peculiarities of PCI because the PCI Council 
nowadays goes to great length to try to not build into the standard, uh, you know, any any reference to well, you have to use a particular product to meet this, uh, and and they try they try very hard not to point people in any specific direction. But the requirement five, the antivirus anti malware requirement, uh, you know, hasn't changed a whole lot, if any. I think from the very beginning back in two thousand four, where you know, there's certainly the usual suspects that are, people are used to and people are accustomed to seeing. The challenge has been uh, uh, over the last couple of years, in fact, this probably goes back seven or eight years, uh, when whitelisting solutions started coming along and people wanted to run that instead of a traditional an- antivirus, especially on a point of sale where they've got, you know, 50,000 of them in 48 contiguous states that they got to maintain and, and patch and update and all that kind of stuff. So... Technically, the language is there today that you alluded to. You can mm-hmm. use anything. You just have to convince, you know, a the customer that's buying it, but more importantly, their QSA mm. that right. it's it's acceptable to to meet the requirement. Uh, because most people are just used to looking for you know somewhat glorified checkbox, but you know they're looking for the McAfee, they're looking for the uh, you know semantics type solutions, and if they see something different, nobody likes to put the the stake in the ground and say, yeah, that's good or yeah, that's not good. Yeah, it's interesting, like where you, you would weigh with that it, it, from both from a compliance standpoint and just overall security posture. Like, what do I want to run on my endpoints? That's going to detect bad things and you know i like at one end of the spectrum sure you've got your large companies that have been around for a really long time and offer you know endpoint security solutions whether it be antivirus or anti-malware whitelisting or a combination thereof or like do i want to run paul's powershell script that can detect some things that is only you know running on these few systems right and then there's everything else in between you know i don't think we want to push people to two extremes of the the spectrum just to check a box but it's hard to to state what you should be doing without recommending one thing or the other or pushing people towards oh well if you just run false powershell script you're fine when false powershell script really sucks right yeah i'm I'm actually glad you brought up things like application you know uh, the, the sort of allow list or exception list because that's I think we're seeing more and more recommendations for that, especially in cloud. And as you mentioned on point of sales, like if you know what the system does, that's actually far more better. That's <laughs> locking that down is actually uh, probably a better investment than than kind of going the other way and trying to let, allow things in and then block them if they're bad. Uh, but yeah, I think the the spectrum is unfortunately, and you, you just mentioned earlier, uh, Tyler, the you know the APT twenty eight you know uh, information, and we're seeing those those sort of uh, built the attacks now get in the hands of others like crime work groups. You know, it's really hard to say what is secure because you have, like you said, from the bottom or the, 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 the layer of compliance is hopefully the beginning of security for a lot of people. Mm. I can at least do this. But then there's a visibility into, you know, PowerShell, the visibility into WMI, the visibility, you know, uh, you know all these kind of layers uh, that you also need. And, you know, you're not really protected if you don't have that, too. But where do we draw the line for a, a two-person company? And Right. Yeah, yeah so and the, you know the well, it is in the space of endpoint protection technologies, right? There's like it, probably a half a dozen or more different ways to protect it, right? And some mm-hmm. there's a whole set of companies that like they do whitelisting. There's a new set of companies that are doing, you know, uh, application fingerprinting and basing a whitelist off of that. I mean, I've actually just recently spoken to two of them, right? But 
Do you run just that? Or do you also have to have some kind of signature or another behavior base? Like how many different endpoint protections do you want and which ones do you pick and mix and match? And like you said, Mike, you try and work with, with others, right? It gets really confusing really fast. Well, yeah, and the challenge is, as you know, is as soon as you go to anything that is not signature based, uh, you know, you do increase your ability to find a new attack, but you also greatly increase the amount of, you know, false positives or benign hits you need to triage. So now right. you have to have a person who's behind that. So you get, so then, you know, there's the challenge of do I hire a managed detection response company? Do I hire an analyst to do this? You know, what, where's the trade off and the risk reward of, of how much I invest in adding protections versus how much I, you know, want to manage this as a full time job. Mm. That's really interesting. Well, I, I, go ahead, Lee. So, and we're talking about doing all this and 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 putting more 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 smarts on the endpoint. How are you at uh, at footprint? I mean, I was working with working a couple of guys the other day, and we were arguing about what agents had the most footprint. And I came out dead wrong, and that when they took off the agent I liked, it got about sixty percent of the CPU back. Hmm. Um, <laughs> Yeah, so we uh, I, I, we could sit over the the uh, I was saying how we use AV comparatives for our validation. AV comparatives had scored us really really well on on uh, in, or what's the right way to say it? They, they we had a very low impact. We were at the top of the list using PC Mark and a few other test suites they had uh, compared to the other like twenty some odd vendors they test against. Uh, so we try to be really low impact. I mean, obviously it's always it's always and it depends. That's one of the one of the uh, the the fun but challenging aspects of endpoint is every single thing you install on is like a brand new environment. Uh, every yeah. every you know desktop laptop, uh, but we we work really hard at this. I mean, it's where sort of our roots, our heritage was in in being low impact and and not causing disruption uh, at endgame, and we we kind of carry that over here as well as into Elastic. Is you know the I mean the number one thing that's going to get you thrown out somewhere is a user calling support and saying this thing sucks, right? It's locking up my system. It's stopped me from doing my job even if you're the best preventative solution in the market. So we, we put a really strong emphasis on ensuring that there isn't user impact and we have some good validation. Uh, but again, the cool part is you, you can download it and try it yourself now because it's free. So you can actually try that part out and see what you think. But I mean, a great solution is one that renders the system useless so the user can't click on stuff. I mean, <laughs> exactly. there's always that. <laughs> You'll never be attacked again. We're just, we just uh, completely locked out your system. Right? Internal, de- we're, internal we're DOS. We're to reveal the hidden agenda, guys. <laughs> Uh, so, uh, Mike, there's uh, an expanded offering of free and open source uh, things that people can get uh, at Elastic, and uh, folks can visit securityweekly.com forward slash Elastic and find out more about that. Uh, I'm actually very excited about that. Uh, to have new offerings out there and free and open uh, is, is a really good thing. So thank you for that. Yeah, hey, I really appreciate talking with you all about it. And, uh, yeah, we're excited too. I think uh, – you know, stay tuned for more, right? We're we're really trying to change the, remove the sort of veil of secrecy that typically exists in security and, you know, try to just do things differently and see uh, how it's received. Awesome. Mike, thanks so much for appearing on Paul Security Weekly. Thank you. Without taking a short break, come back and talk about the security news for this week. Stay tuned. NetSparker, the developers of a comprehensive automated web security platform that includes web vulnerability scanning, assessment, and management. NetSparker's desktop and cloud-based security solutions employ a unique and dead-accurate vulnerability scanning engine that automatically verifies vulnerabilities and provides a proof of concept. For more information, visit them on the web at securityweekly.com forward slash NetSparker. Qualys has brought together vulnerability management and patch management, letting security teams discover vulnerabilities and apply patches immediately, all within a single unified app. Sign up for a free trial of Qualys VMDR 
vulnerability management, detection, and response today at securityweekly.com forward slash quads. Welcome back, everyone, to Security Weekly. Make sure you join the mailing list. Did I say this one already, or am I having flashbacks? Securityweekly.com forward slash subscribe for all things Security Weekly. Discord channel, mailing list, and subscribe to all our shows. I'm pretty sure I read that one already, though. Didn't I? Or am I? Anyway. Uh. Alrighty, then. It wasn't even my software that caused that bug that time, either. (laughs) Which is... very surprising because usually it's my software. Um, welcome back, everyone. It's good to be here talking about security news. Uh, where do we want to start? Oh, I know where we can start. Uh, there was a uh, data breach disclosed by the Sands Institute, who we know and love. Yeah, let's get that out of the way. Let's get that out of the way. I, it it's reminded good, right? me of, of things that like Sands doesn't really like talking about, like Fluffy Bunny. Uh, it was like way back in the day when their, their website got, it got hacked, right? And now, I mean, they were victims of phishing attack. I mean, who hasn't been the victim of a phishing attack in some capacity? Apparently, 28,000 records were leaked, but it really is information that you could find in the phone book or on like True People Search pretty easily. In the what? Yeah. The phone book that we call True People Search. Yeah, but it sounds really cool to be able to say or to be able to report on Sans was breached. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I picked up on that pretty quickly. Uh, did you get yeah, that see, too? I, I mean, because like, it got picked up in a lot of mainstream-ish news. I mean, mainstream for security kind of news outlets that were looked like they were really sensationalizing it. And like, I, it, to me, yep. it wasn't that big of a deal. Yep. No, no that's well, it. Yeah, I think you know, the, a bunch of the, the news outlets made a big deal out of it. When in fact, it was it was a big deal. There was a breach. It happened. Now the information that was disclosed, it may have much of it may have been publicly available, but I think Sands did the right thing in saying we had a problem. There was some information that was leaked from us that may have been aggregated from other sources and be available publicly. But I think they did the right thing. That's what? a great I mean, point, have- Larry, because um, you know. Everybody's going to get breached sooner or later, one day or the other, and it's how you deal deal with it, how right. you respond to it, is as important, if not more important, than trying to prevent the breach in the first place. What I like too is they're like, you know, our, our forensics experts are going to look into that, and Sans forensics experts taught most of the forensics experts that were out there in class in some point in time. <laughs> it's a really high degree of confidence that they're going to uncover exactly, you know, what happened. As well. Oh, and they did. And in fact, while we were on the show on, yeah. on the interview part, uh, Sands posted a defer blog entry that mm-hmm. uh, included significantly more details, including all of the IOCs. There mm-hmm. you go. And it's linked in the show notes. Rob Lee is still the uh, Sands fellow instructor leading the uh, forensics. Uh, I know he was no, for some time. He- I think I'm not sure, but uh, Rob's role has changed. Okay. Uh, he's more along the lines of the curriculum lead for mm-hmm. um, you know, for both pen test and defer. So he's he's quite high up in the uh, the gotcha. organization. So he's been yep. teaching forensics for like since the beginning of time, basically. Yeah, he, yeah like back in what ninety three or nine? No, not ninety three. Two thousand three, two thousand four. When I was taking my first SANS classes, I actually took my uh, what was called track three mm-hmm. now uh um uh 503 um from rob right as my instructor yep 
I want to say Doug White, who's done a lot in forensics as well, also said Rob was one of his instructors, like back in the day. So yeah, mm-hmm. and, and and again, and that's what it's all about. It, something happened, you disclose it, you do the uh, research and uh, investigation, and you make it available to the public. That's now having having said all that, and Larry, I haven't seen what what they posted. I don't know if you've looked at it. You know. I have. Was it was it negligence? Was it you know ha- could happen to anybody? Did they let their guard down? Get ca- you know, can you summarize? Um, uh, it was not negligence to to the okay. best of my knowledge. Um, it does to me look like uh, so it was it was fishing. No no, no yeah. word of a lie of fishing. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a well crafted fishing. Um. For the, the fish, uh, about um, uh, bonuses uh, with an yeah. attempt like mm-hmm. an attachment click here, which installed a malicious uh, uh, add-on for that user's O365 environment, which created email forwarding based on a certain type of list. Gotcha. So it's more in so, the category of it could happen to anybody because sooner or later, somebody's going to come up with a phishing <laughs> email that is... Uh, you know, for whatever reason, uh, you yep. know, too, too, yep. <laughs> looks too innocuous, is too normal. I, and and, I, and I'm glad, I'm glad it's that. And, and I'll share with you, you know, my company uh, subscribes to a service from a company who, whom I will not name. Uh, and, and, you know, we get the periodic phishing, you know, attempts and we're supposed to report it and all that. And it happened to me a couple of weeks ago. I got an I, I got a notice about a UPS shipment, and I'm like, UPS shipment? What the hell are they sending me? Click, bah! You're, you're you've gotten. And then I was supposed to take remedial training, which I refused to do. I have yet to get in trouble for that. Mm-hmm. But I think they eventually sent me a, they sent me a follow up phishing attempt, and I don't know if that's their way of saying has he learned his lesson. Right. But this time this time it was an Amazon Prime shipment link and I'm like aha fool me once yeah <laughs> all that to say is it can happen to anybody it can yeah, you know what's interesting it, too it, i was uh interviewing masha sadova <laughs> from uh elevate security and they actually Gosh. did a study about which users are more likely to click on a phishing email and, and measure different things uh w- w- in the in that aspect and she said mm-hmm. <laughs> her research proved that Newer employees, I forget if it was like six months on average, are more likely to click on a phishing email. Um, it, it, you know, her kind of uh, theory on that uh, in, in speculation was that they don't know, newer users don't necessarily know what's normal and what isn't because right. they haven't been at the company long enough to observe enough email to kind of get a gauge for like what's normal and I get those all the time versus, you know, what might be an anomaly. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I was kind of like, well, you know, also when you're new to the company, like you want to make sure that you click on everything and read every email because you're new and you want to, you know, make sure you're doing your due diligence and you may not know like what you can wait and what can't. You want to make sure everything gets done. Um, it, it was kind of my kind of theory on that as well. She also said that uh, employees that had been there, I want to say 14 years or longer. As- I was going to say, the other end of the bell curve has got to be old-time employees. And that's exactly what it was, Jeff. It's older employees. We kind of speculated 
uh, kind of humorously that like maybe they just they don't care anymore or I I don't know they've gotten complacent <laughs> they've gotten complacent they're like ah whatever what's the worst that could happen maybe in the 14 <clears throat> years working there they've clicked on a bunch of links and email and nothing bad has happened so you know why not but yeah, yeah. and and speaking yeah. from my interactions with folks at Sands mm-hmm. uh, my understanding is and I don't purport to speak for them in any stretch of the imagination I'm a subcontractor <laughs> for right, them right. so I don't know what any of their internal stuff is but based on my interactions when I've said hey I can email you this file or I can get you this thing in this way uh, and the answer was uh, either no I can't do that uh, because Larry, I know you, but I don't trust you. Mm-hmm. Um, or we can do it in this other manner. Or hold on a second, let me get my other system. Or they eat their own dog food. I mean, their yeah. non-technical staff would appear to have gone through some of the same training that they offer to their customers. Agreed. That's always uh, been my mm-hmm. uh, experience with Sands uh, as well. Yeah. That for non-security, non-technical people that worked for Sands are extremely alert and aware of the threats that are out there, right? And and more so the longer that they work there as well, right? Which kind of makes me speculate. It might have been a newer employee that may have had the base level of training, but the more the SANS employees hang out with the SANS instructors and (coughs) students, the more they learn by osmosis. Because you know what? Mm -hmm. Security Mm -hmm. Weekly is the same way, dude. (laughs) It's the same way. The reason why the staff that's here is resilient because through osmosis and hanging out with all of us and hearing all our shows on in the background all day long, uh, you know, they learn things about security. It's it's sinking in. Mm. Did you know uh, about the same time they had the SANS data breach that there was also a data breach of an old server at ProctorU, which relates to SANS because they're using them for their virtual proctors for their certification tests. It was data from 2014 before SANS was even involved, but it was almost a, like a one-two punch because of the timing. Hmm. Interesting. And oh, I meant to tell you guys, I just got 16 new certs. <laughs> <laughs> Those were all proctored. As well, they're all proctored exams, and I I aced them, aced all of them. So I mean, you want to be careful with those proctor exams. You really only have to do them every few, every once a year. Proct- Anything that begins with proc, <laughs> proc, you want to be careful with. Right? Yes, especially the ology. <laughs> yes, once yep. and make sure that both hands are not on your shoulder. Very important. Very important. Yes. Uh, so, you know, I think we sort of beat the sands one to death but uh and when people were sending me that that you know that note it was or or those stories in various formats it was you know clearly it can happen to anyone um i'd also argue that yeah absolutely it can happen to anyone uh because we saw uh also the same day um the ncc group um had its training data leaked online uh, with a bunch of Crest pen test certification exam notes posted to GitHub. So basically, all of the oh. answers to the Crest pen test cert was leaked online that they had had um, compromised. So yeah, it can happen to anyone. It can happen to anyone, but that doesn't. I'm not threatened by that because you can't fake being able to pen test. You might have a cert in your hand, but mm. what's that going to buy you at the end of the day other than maybe getting hired? For a time, I mean, a uh, Jeff, it's a great point. Uh, you can, you can fake your way through training and certification in various levels, but at the end of the day, when you get a job and you have to do it for real, like then what are you going to do? 
right? <laughs> if you have no idea yeah. what you're doing. Yeah, there right. are stories of like other people getting like doing their jobs through proxy and it was like someone else doing their job for them. I want to say we cover that on like Business Security Weekly or something. Yeah, and, and I guess we did one a while, a while back that some, uh, was it uh, either Google or Amazon security engineers set up a webcam so that they the webcam could see the uh, the RSA token and he outsourced his job to like India? Yes. I think that's yes, what it that's was. That's the one. Yep, that's, that's the, the one. one. Yeah, and, yep. and we saw that years ago. Like, Paul, I think we were still in your basement. Yeah. <laughs> well, and it's interesting. Like, you can try and lie your way through life and your career but like eventually you're going to get caught right like and that's why we cover these stories right because like, you got caught yeah. right right i mean we hired a gal back in 2004 her resume looked great except she had short experiences on job it turns out what she did is she bluffed her way into the job and worked it in about 18 months she had to start looking for the next job because she knew it, the hammer was going to fall because the gig would be up but she right. had enough enough moxie to cover two years worth of faking the job it's kind of sad that we didn't catch it on the screening. But yeah, it's, I've been, it's I've hard. Been faking it for like thirty years. Yeah, <laughs> but 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 Lee, now all she needs to do is get a job in social engineering because clearly, if you she went in for the long game, well, right? Yeah, I mean, if if if, if, we, if yeah, I, that'd be a great career for her to, now. And back then, that really wasn't as much of a thing. But oh my God, yes, she'd be cooler at it. Ah, uh, yep. where do we want to go next? So I. I May I? Yes, please. Oh. Uh, it is uh, Lee's story number five. CISA chief wants younger, more experienced hackers in federal government. Uh-huh. Uh, this caught my eye mostly because uh, yesterday, not Tuesday, on Security and Compliance Weekly, we interviewed a, a woman named Jeanette Manfra, who, when I met her, was the she had the god awful long title but basically she was like the associate director for cybersecurity for CISA or DHS or something but now she works at Google um, so CISA caught my eye but you know one of the things we talked talked with Jeanette about is sort of the difference between working for the government working for DHS CISA CISA GIF GIF I don't know how you say it uh, versus the private sector and uh, you know we didn't really bring it up on the air but you know I, I left government many years ago one of the big reasons i left government was because i walked out the door and got like a 30 percent raise mm -hmm. and, and within and within mm -hmm. like two years i doubled my salary um you know not to you know not that that means anything but how does the federal government attract the best and brightest when they don't pay well and, and that's but what Jeff, this article but that's seems a great, to be touching on a little bit but that's a great point too uh, salary uh, for me throughout my career has been one data point. And I mean, let's mm -hmm. be frank, it's not an unimportant data point, right? It's a right. very important data point uh, in, in your career. But, you know, there's obviously other aspects of your job and your career uh, that are also very important. Uh, you know, your quality of life and uh, the ability to learn and feel useful at your job, right? But I mean, let's mm -hmm. be frank, salary is very important. However, there's kind of this this point in this scale. And I think it's why myself and, and many of us on the call and perhaps listening, right, have made moves in their career because when you realize that you can increase your salary by more than 40%, right, or 50% or double your salary or whatever it is, 
that's a huge incentive, right? When you start looking at like, well, yeah, I could make maybe 10, 20, eh, 25, almost 30% more. Those other factors are still pretty heavy in your decision, right? When you realize you can almost double your salary or increase it by 50%, it's really hard to keep someone in this example in a government job doing security, right? That salary incentive is just... I mean, let's be doubling your salary is uh, just a, a huge thing for improvement of not having a lot of shit to worry about that you maybe had to worry about when you're making half as much, right? So right. I, you can't really fault people when it's I can double my salary by moving from government to private sector, right? And I think that's really yeah, where I, the government I, has think, to catch up. Yeah, I, and I think it also has the effect of not just moving from the government to private sector, but even looking at the government to go into as a first career to Agreed. begin with. Agreed. Because right there's that parity gap yeah. right at the beginning. Um, right. I mean, it's the difference said, between I, I can pay off my car and buy a house or not, right? Right. <laughs> uh, really, the, uh, the, those are the big other, things. Yeah, the other one too, I, I know folks that have gone that route and they ha- were willing to take mm. uh, that known, quote, salary cut right out of the gate or even change jobs to go into that uh, because they felt very passionate about serving their country, as it were. I yep. mean, they weren't serving Absolutely. in a branch of the military, Agreed. but they yeah. felt that they were doing the right thing by providing that service for their country. And and that's a that's a really noble idea. Absolutely. Yeah. I think, well, I think that's I'll one say of, this. Well, go ahead, Tyler. I was going to say, I think that's one of the, the biggest motivating factors for maybe some of the people that have been in this for a while, right? Like you've uh, – once you've done this career for a while, you've worked for great companies – uh, you've kind of seen a lot that you've you've done and, and helped with. Really, it comes down to, you know, how do you contribute to the world overall? Uh, doing the same kind of job and not seeing a lot of change all the time uh, or helping with kind of the same problems across multiple companies, um, getting behind a, a different mission or a different type of, you know, from a consulting standpoint, I've been doing this almost 20 years of consulting, uh, getting behind a different mission where money is not the motivator or money is not the client anymore. Yeah, Tyler, you still don't look that. You still don't look that old enough to be doing it twenty years. Just saying, that's a compliment. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> <laughs> and before your camera said it was too hot, and I wasn't sure if that was your camera or you, but <laughs> it's Tyler. In either case, yeah. When you're hot, you're hot. <laughs> you're still young hotter and naive, sweat- as far as I'm concerned. Hotter than Shakira's sweatpants. <laughs> 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 So you know, in, in uh, that article, it, it 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 does in fact say that the GS schedule is from 1929. Um, mm. So it's a yeah. They actually came up with a sliding scale. I can't remember what it's called, but I mean, I looked at some some strictly federal jobs a few years ago um, that were a considerable advance in 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 position, but I was already making more than that, and I did not apply for them. Mm. So I. Th- I think I'm the only one that's more or less started in government and came out that's on, on the air right now, I think. So so let me say this, since I have some experience in this. Uh, you know, when I was at NSA in particular, there were a lot of really smart people. There were a lot of people that were, you know, comfortable in having a, a, a steady job. Um the, the people that I've become reacquainted with over the last couple of years that are people that I worked with even you know way back then, I was on the phone with uh, uh, a couple people that I used to work with just a, a week or so ago. They, they now work for uh, CIS um, 
sort of semi-retirement, you know, type of position. But, um, and I don't want to name names and I don't want to disparage anybody, but there were people that, you know, when I was at NSA, NSA was trying to grow through attrition. I mean, I was literally hired in a group of 100 people. They were hiring 100 people a week Mm -hmm. when I started working at NSA. And this was in the uh, middle of the Reagan administration where they were trying to outspend the Soviet Union to bank, you know, essentially bankrupt them, which is how we ended up winning the Cold War. Long story, I'm paraphrasing. I I thought it was the Civil War, but anyway, continue. (laughs) Yeah, it was the Spanish Civil War. Give me a little bit. Spanish-American War? Yeah, Spanish American, but um, bastard. <laughs> I haven't had I a good it. old. I, I haven't had a good old person joke in a while. Uh, Jack Daniel hasn't been on the show yeah. in years, so I, I feel. I, I, I play the role. What was I Shout talking Jack. about? I think it's time for me to go to bed and take my Metamucil. Um, <laughs> Do you need to talk the, to your sock puppet though? There was certainly dead weight that I would consider people that were like comfortable to have, you know, have a government job, steady employment. I mean, when you reach any size organization, Jeff, you're going to find that. Right. Right. Yeah. And, and I had a couple things working for and against me. One was, you know, they had accelerated pay scales at NSA for what they called critical skills, which at the time were engineers, mathematicians, computer scientists. I was neither. So I was brought in on the regular pay scale, and not only were those people uh, getting accelerated pay, but they also were first in line for all the extra benefits, like getting paid to go to grad school and 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 getting all the different opportunities for diversity tours, which would get get you the professionalization, which was a um, sort of the certification rubber stamp that you needed to get into the higher grades. That that was the way it worked back then. Um, so I had that working against me. Um, but there were, and, and you know, 100 people a week, they were hoping to keep maybe 10. Mm. Uh, and, and they were bringing in mostly engineers, mathematicians, right. computer scientists, and almost immediately sending them off to school to get their graduate degrees. But the the agreement was you had to match your time of service. You know, if they if they sent you to school for two years, you had to give two years of government service. You know, in order to not have to pay them back. Except the clock was running at the same time. Yeah, they they figured it out eventually. But there were so many people that were coming right out of college, getting the job at NSA, getting paid. 30, 20, 30% extra than the, the regular stiff like me that went to work there, getting first in line to get the graduate degree, getting paid to do it, getting paid while they were doing it. And, and like a month after they got their degree, they were eligible to leave and go on and to the greener pastures and so on and so forth. So it was a screwed up system. Uh, but that's, that's the way it was. I mean, the it sounds like it could also have done wonders for the U.S. economy if they went on to build commercial companies, right? Well, mm-hmm. yeah, but most of them were going off and getting jobs. And this was, you know, when I started there, outsourcing wasn't really a thing, but that yep. was becoming a not thing. Every, not every home had a TV. Yeah, we get, we get it. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, flush toilets <laughs> or uh, refrigerators. Electricity. Electricity. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Uh, wait hold on tyler's back i just have to digress for a moment did you go get more snacks because you started off what's the cheese that comes in the, the plastic 
red plastic <laughs> what is that called the best cheese it's the only cheese i don't know what it's called actually. <laughs> I, I forget what that's called and then i saw you had some kind of energy bar some kind of protein <laughs> bar and then doritos there was that doritos what kind of Doritos? those were those were regular doritos those look good hot spicy what is that they're the dynamite ones Dynamite, Dynamite Doritos. And what did you Dynamite. wash that down with? Was that another kind of protein shake or what what what, what was that? It was a recovery rock star. Recovery rock star. I just for our younger audience think getting into information security, don't take Tyler's dieting tips. No. <laughs> don't worry, they already are. Tyler probably learned it from them. Right. Yeah. So my long winded point is people that stayed some stayed just because they weren't going to get a job somewhere else. Right. I was, I was, I was looking to leave before I was encouraged to leave, and you've heard that story mm -hmm. before, and somewhat. But you know what? What really did it for me was they changed the rules at some point. Uh, they went through periods of downsizing where they were paying people to leave, and um, the, you know incentivizing you to leave. And originally they did it for anybody. Then they figured out all their critical skills were leaving. And so they changed the rules and said, if you're a critical skill, you're, you're not eligible. And in the time that I was there, I had gone and gotten a second degree mm -hmm. uh, in computer science. I was doing the whole, you know, red teaming thing, getting into computer security, internet security, but they'd never updated my job code. So on paper, I was still eligible to get paid to leave. So when the shit, when the, the when the shit hit the fan, I was able to walk out the door and get paid to go out and get that job that mm. paid me, you know, thirty thirty percent more. Mm. The people I know that have stayed there, and 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 some that are still there that I, that I know, brilliant people, and they absolutely do it because of the patriotism and the giving back. And I'll also mm -hmm. say there's a certain element of in terms of lifestyle. Um, you know, it's a nine to five job mostly because you don't, you really don't take your home, your work home with right. you. You can. And there's right. something yeah. to be said for that. Mm -hmm. And, and uh, you know, having access to labs where you've got every, you know, any, any tool and right. product that's out there, you get a copy of it. You know, I mean, it, it, it's the Toys R Us of the technology mm -hmm. world, the labs that they have there. So, you know, there's, there's something to be said for the lifestyle. And, and, you know, and Converse. Uh, some of the things that I, I've heard from our industry and DEFCON and, and those folks that the lifestyle is also reasons why many of the people we know haven't gone that route and it has nothing to do with money. Uh, it has to be with the consumption of federally banned or federally illegal substances that may be legal on a state level that these folks partake in and would validate their uh, ability to have these jobs. Either to or, get them or, or to keep them. Absolutely, or even paint the security security clearances and you know lifestyles, polys, all of the things that you have to do in order to maintain a lot of the the clearance level stuff is you know that's a lot for some people. Oh. Well, Dude, don't forget yes, giving up some of your civil rights too. There's that too. I mean, there's lots of things that go into the lifestyle decision. Um, I, I, I think while those are valid and they're all very real, I think at least from my perspective, more than anything, it was the, 
the hunger to be able to j- react and do things more quickly and not get mired in the bureaucracy. Mm. You know, I, I, I talked about it, 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 you know, when you interviewed me, more tales from the crypt, um, you know, literally when we were first trying to negotiate doing penetration testing and, and, and doing it right and doing it legal, uh, meaning involving the, the general counsel and the lawyers, they came back and said, before you can issue a ping command, you need to get written permission from all levels of management, which was a paper process that took weeks to accomplish. That that kind of stuff didn't, you know, that's an extreme example, but that's the kind of lifestyle change that I was looking for, where I went out into the private sector, I would get hired by a company, we would go in and do a red team assessment, vulnerability assessment, whatever you want to call it, we would tell them what was wrong, we would help them figure out what they needed to do right, we'd spend a couple weeks a month, um, they'd thank us for it, and we were done, boom, boom, that's not how it works in the government. You know, the, you have to have all sorts of hands touching it, and it has to go through all sorts of procedure. And what should only take a few minutes takes months. That's the lifestyle that I couldn't cope with. But that's mm-hmm. that's my personal decision. Other people, I mean, I couldn't imagine being an accountant. No offense to accountants. That that kind of work would drive me crazy. I have friends that are accountants. They love it. Sam is amazing as an accountant. Not my cup of tea. Mm. You know, right. so it's that lifestyle thing. Um, there was something in the in the article about you know we just need to hire a bunch of teenagers and and, and you know literally our our deputy director at the time when he was like when they were finally figuring out NSA needed to do things in terms of internet cyber you know we didn't call it cyber back then you know his his quote was all we need is a bunch of those. Uh, you know, 30 or 40 of those young, long-haired, you know, hacker types, and we'll be great. So I'm not sure I buy that mentality from this article, but more power to them. I I did want to transition to another article um, that I think is particularly interesting. Amazon Alexa one-click attack can divulge personal data. I don't know if you guys read this article. Um, I, I think it's very interesting. I have a stupid question about it, but go on. Uh, for a lot of reasons. So uh, certificate pinning that bypasses the mechanism for protecting traffic. They were to view traffic transmitted between the app and an Echo device. From there, several requests made by the app had misconfigured cores policy. So it sounds like certificate pinning was just a method for them to bypass security controls to conduct their research. The cores uh, policy which uh, cross-origin resource sharing uh, allows resources on a certain, uh, allowing resources on a certain allowed web pages to be requested outside the domain. When misconfigured, this can be bypassed. However, the misconfiguration could allow attackers to send specific AJAX requests from any other Amazon subdomain. And it doesn't specifically say this in the article, but that means I spin up, a resource in Amazon's cloud and I'm on an Amazon subdomain is kind of the way that I read it. Uh, then that vulnerability could allow attackers to, with code injection capabilities on one Amazon subdomain to perform a cross-domain attack on another Amazon subdomain. So basically, I spin up a resource in Amazon. I get you to click on a link. That allows me to read all of the apps that you have installed on your Amazon Alexa device. Tyler, I don't know. This sounds like something you've talked about recently recently. Uh, if you read through this attack and if I'm describing it correctly. I'm reading through it right now. That's very interesting. Certificate pinning is one of the few ways that, you know, 
any of these apps actually survive because of how poorly some of them are written. Mm. And so, like, I'm trying to read through and parse some of the technical pieces of this one. I'm I'm curious how the where the one click plays into this. Like, isn't Amazon or isn't Alexa something you talk to? So it says uh, a bad actor would first convince an Alexa user to click on a malicious link, directs them to Amazon, directs them to Amazon where the attack has code injection capabilities from the core's oh, vulnerability. On the Alexa app on the phone. Okay, okay. Right. From there, the attacker could get a list of installed apps, which wasn't all that interesting, installed, and the user's token, which that's interesting. Does that mean with the user's token, do I get them to... One click is deceiving, I agree, because like, is the next link I click on after I get the uh, token, I make them click on another link, and with their token, I can get them to install an app silently in the background on their Alexa. That's where I would go as an attacker, obviously, right? Yeah, that's what, that's what I was thinking. That or with the token, you essentially have the ability to gain certain permissions that that token has in order for you to leverage that with uh, another app, potentially, or... Right, can uh, I make requests to the... Alexa API with that token and interact with authentication to the Alexa API on behalf of that user, which means I could install apps without even asking them to click on anything. Yeah, right. and the, the I mean the Alexa API and just the skills in general mm, is uh, a hot mess. Been, it's always been into that for a long time. It's it's a it's a dark hole. Yep. There's a substantial amount of like just smoke and mirrors, and there's a substantial amount of like um, I would call it segregation that doesn't make a ton of sense yet. So it doesn't surprise me that someone's found a way to abuse this a little bit, but this one doesn't seem all that interesting, quite honestly. No, because I I don't think you can install even a skill that would listen all the time unless you were to bypass further protections, right? From the way Correct. I have understood yeah. it, they they put that in a long time ago, right? You remember the very first version of that? They with the solder thing, you could right. put like an always listening header yeah. off of that and use a mic. Since then, there's been very strict permissions and sandboxing around certain permission or uh, right access for certain pieces of hardware, right. and that's one of them. So now I'm, the I'm other speculation, though, is that these devices, along with Google devices, are always listening. Because we've all heard the... It, it, is there research out there that definitely proves this? Because like, you'll be in conversation and talking about buying a new you know, smoker to do barbecue, and all of a sudden you start seeing ads for that. But you haven't searched for it yet. You've only said it verbally, right? Which means... No, there's, there's definitely... Uh, there's been recent uh, releases of a few examples that, that went public, but there's a lot of like private stuff that has been researched or disclosed and yeah they're always listening in fact you can there's even some court always. cases always cleverly hidden that uh where you where they've used it in court cases mm. so yeah there's there's information there that's always recorded by the provider but they put sandboxing and protections around a user or developer making an app to do the same thing I actually got a notice from Google in the last week or so saying, hey, you know, we know we, I'm paraphrasing grossly, you know, we're recording everything, but you can change the settings, log into your Google account and, and modify it. Um, and I haven't done anything yet because for all I know, it's clickbait and it's a phishing attack. But Could be, but uh, yeah. But yeah, the, I, I mean, I, I, Somebody in the room with me was talking about something. I won't say what it was. Uh, just in the last week or two, uh, some of my family and I started getting the ads mm -hmm. for what they had been talking about. Drives me crazy. 
And, and, and I'm, one- I'm almost okay with that if the user has control, like you said, Jeff. And I, I would hope mm-hmm. that threat of class action lawsuit and things like that, which, by the way, drives a lot of policies on the YouTube side, gives the user that capability. I wonder if I kept the notice. I might have deleted it. The notice had something to do with uh, being able to ha- being able to delete the, the recordings or how long they were going to keep it or retain oh, it or something like yeah. that. It, it was kind of weird. I should have paid more attention to it, but I was busy doing day jobs. I want the opt out. That's what I want. Yep. Yep. See, but that's well, it's the, like that's Twitter. The problem, I've been getting it. Of, Sorry, Tyler. Go ahead. You're good. I mean, all of, all of these devices are subsidized, and and the income that these companies make like Google, Amazon, mm. most of their revenue is generated. In fact, almost a good portion of their revenue is generated from the advertising data that they're either selling or provisioning out to other companies. It's a great and point, so Tyler, because like I, when I buy stuff on, so I bought my wife a new laptop, right? It happened to be a Google Chromebook. And all of a sudden, like this new Google Home device showed up because I got one of those free when I bought the laptop. And like I already have a bunch of these, so I switched from the Amazon devices to the Google devices. But privacy-wise, they all seem to be the same, which is really not cool with me. But speaks to the, your narrative yeah, you, of they subsidize yeah, them you, because they're monetizing based on the advertising revenue. Yeah, I mean, how do you how do you get by that though? Like we are provided the internet or a search engine uh, by subsidizing that information. We're provided cheaper hardware on our phones by subsidizing that an OS. And, you know, even the telemetry data that Microsoft collects, which they keep very private and internal, but still from there, what are they doing with that? It's not yeah. sold, but they use it internally very, very extensively. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I mean, we've got a, there's not a ton that you can do. The the uh, stuff in, in the EU that has done some of the privacy uh, lobbying has helped a little bit, but honestly, that's just allowing you to see what they collect, kind of. Right. And that doesn't even that doesn't you know go out to the advertising company. So this is. But it, it's a hard from a. It's hard from a use, usability perspective when you're the user and you want to be able to voice control the stuff in your home, and that that to me is not just cool, but like actually really awesome in the house. But now our only options are to use a commercial company because the commercial companies can afford the research and development to make a natural language interpretation AI engine. And to offload that to the cloud. Yes. Right? So they're offloading right? to the cloud for interpretation. And so you need an Amazon or a Google or an Apple to create that. But now you're also like in the world of commercial corporations have taken over like Blade Runner and countless other science fiction movies have predicted like i feel like we're already there in a lot of aspects <laughs> right very true yeah i i was going to say i keep getting a notice from twitter that they uh are doing something with ads they want to tailor ads to me so they want me to click and either say keep the default ads or personalize the ads mm-hmm. and i just keep i and i've been doing this for weeks i just keep reloading the page and it goes away for a while cuz i don't want to give them any more information about you. of what yeah. my interests are right um and, and i don't i don't know if they're gonna you know ever give up and and stop trying to get me to do that but i i can win <laughs> i will right? outlast them i already have a 55 gallon drum of lube i don't need to see the amazon <laughs> advertisement for it that's right <laughs> The other thing that I wanted to mention that that's kind of interesting is I, I have a, a customer right now that's an e-commerce customer, so I'm looking at their website. And in the world of PCI, you can do the the short form 
very lightweight uh, compliance if you basically you outsource everything, especially your payment page, to a third party that's PCI compliant. And that's what a lot of small merchants do. But I was looking at their website and I was looking at the page source code because I was trying to figure out uh, if and when they're redirecting to a third party in terms of the you know the the flow of their website, especially the their shopping cart and and the you know proceed to checkout type of thing. What I was seeing, which I, I you know would love to dig into someday, but I'm lazy. I'd rather ask other people that do website assessments about it. There were all sort of all sorts of links to Twitter, Google, Facebook. Amazon and I'm like holy crap they're they're collecting all sorts of data on these people and and it's all built into this website and do they even know about it that that kind of I I I know that I know that that happens but I'd never seen it like in the source code before and it was kind of freaking me out a little bit it's like oh my god you know where where do we go with that because people are just clicking through and and they're collecting all this data and everybody's fat dumb and happy because they get a coupon or they get a discount or they get the targeted ads that that we've been talking about um i just i want to transition to like vulnerabilities i feel like in software that we've been talking about probably for 15 years or more um adobe being the shining example of that uh new uh, vo- 26 <laughs> vulnerabilities, 11 which are deemed critical. critical. I, and I, I really, I hesitate to make the recommendation that you shouldn't not, you should not run software like based on the reputation of vulnerabilities because all software does have have vulnerabilities. However, Adobe, let's just pick on Adobe Reader for as an example, like just the n- sheer number of vulnerabilities. And, and again, you can look at this data in a lot of different ways and say, well, Adobe Reader is really popular, therefore it's under a lot more scrutiny than maybe other PDF readers or other software that's not as popular. Therefore, we're uncovering more vulnerabilities. You can also look at the nature of software and say software such as a PDF reader that is parsing structured and to a certain extent unstructured data uh, from the user or, or from a, a, a source is also going to be vulnerable because usually parsing things is what le- leads to a lot of different vulnerabilities. But again, if you look at the data and the sheer number of vulnerabilities coupled with the criticality in something like Adobe Reader, it kind of falls on my list of like stuff you should just never run and allow on any of your uh, systems, especially in the enterprise. I would put... Uh, vBulletin and forum software in the similar kind of category. Also kind of processing unstructured data accepted by the user in the, the uh, forum. In, in, in earlier days in the show, we talk a lot about forum vulnerabilities because those were the days yeah. before Reddit, before Discord, and b- mm-hmm. before all these much better mechanisms um, to have a cloud hosted with, uh, in Slack, but which also makes me now question security of slack and discord and, and reddit right because they are essentially forum and or chat type software but uh vbulletin has had a, a pretty poor history uh of vulnerabilities uh i don't know let, let, let me stop there before i move on to team viewer because i think that might be a different discussion so like vbulletin and adobe are probably pretty high up if you were to go back through our entire archive and there's actually ai engines that do this uh they can go back through our entire archive of audio for all of our shows since the beginning of time uh, and start pointing out trends and do the transcription of it, you would find yeah. us saying the words Adobe, 
and V bulletin probably quite a bit, <laughs> especially Adobe. Yeah, well, yeah, I mean, Adobe PDF, we've kind of gotten to the point, right? Like where Office has had this, we'll call it the last three to five years of uh, the preferred infection vector or, you know, macros, VBScript, DDE, all of the infections were coming through, you know, Office products. They've gotten better. There's a lot of protections with, uh, with Office products and where they've came. And PDFs have kind of gotten left alone and been the, you know, the trusted source for receiving information that can't be changed. Well, anybody that knows PDF knows that's not really true, but a lot mm -hmm. of that is contingent upon the reader or interpreter uh, that opens the PDF. And with Adobe being the prevalent one that a lot of people use, um, I see this as pretty critical because even though there's auto-updating and stuff happening, uh, I would say that's one of the, the few commercial pieces of software that we tend to see such a wide range of versioning numbers, even when they're controlled uh, with some endpoint management stuff. Uh, for whatever reason, the PDF manager is seems to be left alone and is usually the one that ends up getting popped, especially Adobe. Well, and it's interesting, too, to that point. Someone was telling me about, um, like, WinZip or P PKZip or one of the compression tools installs the new version but leaves the old version behind and it makes vulnerability management, and I can speak to this very much firsthand, extremely difficult because, oh, the latest version is there and it's patched, but my vulnerability scanners still tell me that it's vulnerable, and that's because there's another copy of it that is on the system that is vulnerable, right? And that situation comes up more often than not, and still uh, to this day, which is kind of interesting. And the, the, other, the other one, too, that, Paul, that I would find many times with, uh, with scanning tools like that is that they could detect the presence, but they weren't able to detect the version. Yep. So they would have to alert on all the potential uh, issues with any version. Yeah, and if there's multiple users on the system and all of the users have installed different versions, now you're right. in the same, basically the same boat, yeah. right? Well, that's actually the question of about what do you want to install in user space versus system space? Because mm -hmm. you, can, right. you can't manage user space centrally, typically. You can only manage system space. So it's a, it's a challenge. Um, I'm, I'm looking forward to the end of this year when Adobe finally deprecates flash because so many of those adobe issues were flash related um i mean yeah my flash fear was originally a cool idea but it certainly went downhill from that yeah but my fear though is there what happens to the sites that still do require flash and allow and now forces users to do the workaround like there's going to reach a day where all of a sudden the browser that you're using is just not going to render flash content at all and what the user is going to do and I totally believe attackers are going to take advantage of this, is one of two things, right? Maybe both. They're going to go find a previous version of the browser that does support Flash, and they're going to install that, and it's never right. going to be updated, right? Because it's yeah. just, they're just going to pin themselves to that version. Or they're going to go find an alternative browser and or plugin that is going to render Flash content that's still going to be vulnerable. In either case, mm -hmm. I still think there's going to be a fairly hefty user population out there that is going to use and go to sites that require a flash they're going to circumvent and attempt to circumvent all kinds of security controls because they want to go to the site that renders the flash content <clears throat> okay poor and I, at the end of the day honestly <laughs> with all that flash there's there's always javascript to fall back on everything uses javascript now all the modern websites use javascript the browser uses javascript and what is a lot of good malicious code being written in for hooking browsers and injecting code JavaScript. Mm -hmm. So do we really need Flash anymore? 
no, I we absolutely do not, as users, should not require Flash. However, there are sites that are still being implemented in Flash today that users are going to go to, and that's what's going to force them down all these nasty vulnerabilities. It's very similar to I want to jailbreak my phone to get this thing that I want to do because if I don't jailbreak my phone, the security protections prevent me from doing that, and therefore I have to circumvent them, right? right. I mean, how and else are you going to do the monitoring? Right. All the monitoring on all the 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 uh, good MDMs for like uh, monitoring your child, protecting the iPhone, uh, restricting apps with time restrictions. You know, Apple's Apple stuff sucks there, and the third-party applications that do do it uh, require jailbreak for most of the functionality that anybody wants to use. And even that has been limited recently with all the updates. So, you know, you're right. There's always got to be a workaround for both uh, malicious activity as well as legitimate activity for monitoring at a lower level well yeah and it's, it's interesting i've uh messed around with several of those different monitoring apps and it's like oh yeah you can monitor text messages because your goal is apparent maybe you know what i do want to give my child a phone i do want them to be able to send text messages but you know what i want to be able to monitor it and it goes yeah you can do that but you got to be android right <laughs> can't be ios and do that because ios doesn't let you change your default text messaging app which is one of the reasons why I use Android, right? But then yep. now there's not as, again, it's that whole balance between control and security, which right. mm -hmm. we did our webcast today on uh, with Todd Beardsley on Todd's project to scan the internet and monitor the internet via honeypots and looking at which countries and maybe more vulnerable and have more exposed services. Turns out China and the U.S. are pretty much in the top two. And, and, and what, the, what Todd's like, you know, for Todd, his analysis, and I agree with wholeheartedly, is you can have a very much as free and open internet as you want. You can have China, which is very much a very controlled internet in sometimes both directions, depending on what kind of filtering you're talking about. And guess what? They're still just as vulnerable. So the, you know, a, a kind of uh, uh, police state of monitoring and the free and open result in a similar level of security in a lot of these circumstances, which is, I on the phones, could be a similar kind of model, right? I'll have to catch the webcast on demand, but is he also mapping the deep and the dark web? Uh, all IPv4 uh, that people have not opted out of. Uh, okay. IPv6, uh, you know, obviously he's not doing active scanning of... Um, but his assessment, because this question comes up all the time, right, is mm -hmm. that if you are running IPv6, you know, as uh, Joff was stating in, in previous segments in his own webinars, uh, you're yep. doing some translation to IPv4 at some point, right? He right. does it, – it, it, now, he doesn't think that there's an entire, like, sub-internet or, or dark web that's running on IPv6. Mm -hmm. uh, I, the conspiracy theorist in me, uh, I tend to lean towards – if I were an attacker and I wanted to set up a, a dark web on the internet and be basically security through obscurity that actually works, I would do it on IPv6 because mm. I can hide. I could have my own. It, there's so much address space. I could have my own internet on IPv6. That sounds yeah. really. That sounds really complex, though. Well, and there, yes, there is. I which, agree. Which reminds me of my story number <laughs> three. Uh, story number three. Go. Report. Unskilled hackers can breach about three out of four companies. 
Uh, truth. So we're yeah. back to the seventeen-year-olds. Uh, well, not, we're back to the truth. fact that so so many companies are breached for stupid stuff that anybody can do, and there isn't a whole lot of uh, highly sophisticated attackers out there. I'm just. They're just they're just looking for the stuff that works that they know how to do. I'm just Not looking at the headline, and I'm already skeptical. Uh, <laughs> just the first, the first word, unskilled. How would, have they measured the skill level of an attacker? Because to state well, that in the in early days, we would, we would call unskilled hackers script, script kitties. kitties. Right. But, to, I mean, even define, to me, it's not well-defined enough to assert the skill level of an attacker to call them either unskilled skilled script kitty or what you would have to prove to me through multiple studies that you're able to measure the skill level of an attacker and i want to know how you're doing that and in, in Tyler, that data. how often are you having to come up with a, an o-day on the spot versus you've got something in your bag of tricks that just works all right but that's, so the, but that's okay. the security of the company you're targeting not the skill of the attacker Necessarily, that's a, yeah. that's a separate data point. You're, you're splitting hairs. Of course, I am. I, think. I would I would argue that that is not correct, right? Like, so we'll take three different three different quick examples. One, you've got endpoint uh, detection to get around. Anybody running modern Windows 10, you've got Defender to get around, which is not it's not that hard, but it's still not trivial. They've put a lot of protections in. Windows 10 is a lot better. Uh, most of the ways in which you fish, you have to have some sort of spam. Does bypass. it require skill or having things. possession of the right tool? So you have to have both. You have to have the knowledge because the tool doesn't do anything for you automatically. I, I can't imagine trying to build any level of half-decent attack without understanding the tool and how to utilize that tool. I mean, setting up just C2 comms and a framework that's not going to get caught by any modern-day firewall and make it outside of you know just general AV is going to take a certain level of at least base knowledge. So yeah, sure. not like ultra skilled, but I would argue in order to do a successful engagement, a successful targeted attack against any organization, it's going to take a little bit of setup, a little bit of knowledge, and at the end of the day, you've got to you've got to be semi skilled to carry that out from beginning to end. Yeah, you may land a fish and grab someone's single user creds that gets you their email box. And you might get some data out of that, but I wouldn't consider that a breach or uh, the ownage of a, an organization by any means. Uh, and and I would disagree with that on the breach, because go back and think about story number one that we covered. A breach of 28,000 user account sets of data from one user's email account at SANS. I was going to say, within one email account, you can get a lot of data. In fact, I just, uh, so, I, I just so, want to point out so that uh, uh, we're, we're talking about this in the context of research that was based on the report, which presents the results of external pen tests uh, of corporate information systems performed by one pen test company. Oh, right. So to me, that's a, not, it, not enough data set, uh, yeah. enough data to to state three out of four companies in the world can be breached by unskilled hackers. Yeah. And, and, and that said, they didn't specifically call out the fact that uh, phishing may have been in scope or not. Or Well, they might have so, in the report, Larry. I, I was just trying to skim, yeah, skim the, actual, uh, yeah. the actual report. Now, I'm not saying their data is invalid. But the graphic that they use, the, the hackers are wearing hoodies. And that has well, to be... it's got to be real world. Health. A, a few points towards your skill measurement. Uh, 
I, I would argue no, the clothing that you're, no, you're wearing or not wearing should should not matter. In this, case. I would say the, the well, majority it, it of speaks like to a, a certain level of skill, Paul. Right? It does. Superficial. Yeah, the corporation's maturity though matters a, a great deal, and the the type of pen test company you're utilizing based on the company's maturity. Like I would I would put many of our companies up against you know some very very skilled people and they would have a hard time like that's the goal of all of this otherwise we're not doing our job unless they're saying i'm unskilled i don't know <laughs> well no i i think the problem tyler is not that skilled pen pen testers are not doing their job i th i think it's a it, it's more a matter of the majority of companies out there it's a combination of a couple things. The majority of companies out there are not hiring skilled pen testers. They're hiring mm -hmm. whatever they can do to get the checkbox to get get done and, and get get beyond it. They're not taking full advantage of the pen testing. But I also, and I don't know if this is more or less important, the mentality within our industry that the only people that really know what's wrong with your network or can tell you what's wrong with your network is the pen testers, while in many cases that's valid, and it's certainly how I came into the commercial sector 25 years ago, I would like to think that uh, you know pen testing is much more of a how well are you doing, not let me tell you everything that's wrong with you. Um, we may never get there. I should probably just shut up about it and just accept it. But I, I, I think I think we we pen tester hacker community put too much emphasis and assumption on this. It all begins and starts with the pen test and knowing what's really wrong and what's really go going on, because that kind of throws all the process and people in process, you know, out the out the window. And which pragmatically, I agree, is how most companies approach it. But it shouldn't be that way. I'll get off my soapbox. No, but also you have to define what a breach means. What is it? We just talked about the SANS breach. True. Right? True. And we said, yeah, yeah okay, yes, SANS in its classic sense and the way we defined breach was breached. But d does that mean that an unskilled hacker can breach an organization like SANS and they're in that three out of four companies? I, I, I don't know that I would draw those conclusions. I don't know that there's many definitive conclusions I can draw from reading this article and that and that study because I, I think we need more more studies or and or data presented in a different light to define I, the I skill agree level with you. what means what it means to, for a breach and how you measure the effectiveness of a company's security program. I think those are three different data points. I agree we can with debate I, all night long. I agree with you philosophically. I agree with you, but when you look at some of the numbers. And the percentages of things that fell with like the first attempt at doing some one thing, and you know, I, 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 I would not be surprised if those numbers don't roughly coalesce over other pen testing companies. I think a lot I, of I, pen I testing companies um, have similar experiences. And I'm drawing on an interview that we did with Doug Hubbard that talks about which I have yet to listen to. Okay, which apparently was. Mind-altering. Mind-blowing. Mind yeah. uh, but now, on the flip side of kind of my arguments are, and one of the things that Doug uh, brings up and defends his point very well, is that you don't need to have a completely comprehensive study with millions of different test subjects to draw conclusions from, right? And, and Jeff, to your point, not, and not, again, not just taking this study, 
But all of the studies that I've read about the effectiveness of security programs versus penetration testing teams, right? I think we can, mm-hmm. can draw conclusions that the majority of times a pen tester will get in. And largely, I don't believe in all the studies that I've read from very well-respected firms, to other firms that maybe I've never heard of, their data, if you were to study that data, my hypothesis would be that it doesn't take a very skilled attacker to breach the majority of companies out there. I think that this article kind of does this disservice by looking at this one study. I think if you were to look Mm -hmm. at the studies that were produced by Praetorian and several other companies out there, that you would come to the same conclusion. You just need to look at more studies in a slightly different light with some unbiased data, and you would probably come to the conclusion, same conclusion that that I would like to draw, is that you don't need to be the world's greatest hacker to breach the majority of companies that are out there on the planet today, right? I think we can all agree on that. And it'd be awesome to do the study, right? right? Like the gap between really mature companies Mm -hmm. and doing really good security is becoming greater between the ones that are getting left behind and just checking the box, right? That gap is furthering and there's going to be more and more on either side of that fringe and so i think that has a lot to do with it as well there are today and and you have to watch the uh, in the context of this i highly recommend you go watch the webcast with with todd from rapid seven todd beardsley is awesome um and, and presents the facts from the data that he collected there are eight million or so medium to high level vulnerabilities that exist on the internet today those represent mm-hmm. about 4 million systems on the internet uh, today that have CVSS score, uh, I want to say of 8.5 or above, or there's some statistic about critical vulnerabilities that are largely remote code execution that are hanging out there today. And that's 4 right. million different systems, right? And then just think about the number of companies that might represent. It also presented data about which industries had the most critical vulnerabilities. Those were telecom, finance, and healthcare, uh, which, which is also data that can support that Yeah, it probably wouldn't take a very skilled attacker to uh, successfully breach a lot of the companies that are out there today, right? So uh, I don't disagree with the finding, Jeff. I just disagree with mm-hmm. the methodology and, and the data. I think there's better data points that you can pull from to basically draw the same conclusion. Well, and I confess I haven't read the article to know what their conclusion was other than the splashy headline. Right. But uh, again, I agree with you, but I, I th- and I think I'm agreeing with you. It boils down to not maybe necessarily the testing metric and getting, you know, more data points, uh, a, a bigger, a bigger test, test pool, but also what do you, what do you want to do with the data? You know, yep. it, it, you know, is it a, is it a, a reflection of the pen testing community or is it a reflection of the immaturity of more companies? Oh, completely to, agree, Jeff. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. You have to define your hypothesis before you do the study. And I think right. a lot of these studies are just for like, Hey, you should have a pen test and you know what you should do I with, mean, with us. And I get believe me, I get marketing and I get, I get all of that too. Right. But I think right. it's more worthwhile to the community to form a very intelligent hypothesis and then seek to prove that, right? And it's something we learn about in, in grade school most of the time, right? In theory. And that could be, again, like you said, Jeff, I, multiple studies, right? Like 
how do you measure the skill level and how do you measure the effectiveness or ineffectiveness of the you know security maturity uh, uh, program right or the maturity of the security program right so I, those are two different data points to measure so right the the article's based on a report uh from uh, uh what's it something uh Anyway, the report says this is a common. This is a correlation of 28 engagements we did in 2019. But at least they weren't doing a single test, and in the result, um, I don't know how broad a subset that is, but still kind of interesting. Well, I, no, I and, no, and I, and I get that. And, and again, you know, and, and Doug uh, Hubbard talked about this that you know you don't necessarily need a whole ton of data to to prove a point, right? And right. he also pointed out that th you can basically do a study which which is what i i, I really liked you yeah. can do a study of a bunch of other previous studies and use that to help draw a conclusion and <laughs> this study by i don't know what the the pen testing firm was uh you know who, we've been talking about them for a while uh, and we maybe name them by name uh positive technologies right that's uh, it their findings if I recall from memory the findings from other pen test firms that have done similar studies basically came to the same conclusion that yeah. like basically security sucks and pen tests are very successful, right? And so mm -hmm. given that, uh, there's validity. Even though it was only 28 companies, if you start combining that with previous studies from uh, – uh, uh, Praetorian has done studies. Rapid7 has also done studies uh, on yeah. their pen tests, right? And other firms as well. They all draw basically very similar to these same conclusions. So even though it was only 28 from this one pen test company, it's in line with other studies that I've, that I've read uh, about this. So I think you could look at all of those and basically draw a much larger conclusion that yes, they're, they're we have a problem in security that people are insecure and attackers <laughs> of maybe not a great deal of skill are able to breach these companies, right? This study on its own, the headline is very sensational, but I think there's a larger data set there that we can draw from to make those conclusions. Well, and to take it a, one smaller step even further, and, and you, you kind of went the same place where I was thinking, but I was thinking more of the Verizon report. Mm -hmm. Verizon has the Beat Deeper report. Verizon has right. a PCI report. Uh, you know, breach report. Mm -hmm. It's still only one company and their customers, and right. that's got to be a, a biased sample. Intuitively, you think that, yet you do enough of these studies, and, yes. and if you've been in this business long enough, trust me, I walk into a new company and they start telling me about what they're doing, and you know, it's PCI focused. But almost before they start talking, I know where they're going. And I know where their problems are, and I know what the likely suspects are because everybody does the same things wrong. Everybody struggles with the same things that could make them more mature. Um, it, you know, and I'm not not trying to be cynical or curmudgeon or anything, but very rarely do I see something new and original. Like, wow, I've never seen that. Uh, you know, that kind of ineptitude before right. that i mean we can even we different. can even take uh rapid sevens data uh mm. and, and use it to validate the study right so 8.5 right. million high severity vulnerabilities across 50 poor 54.5 million devices that's just in the u.s alone right um right. there were 191,314 windows slash linux smb servers exposed to the internet in the u.s alone right 
and and, right. and so I, that you could draw conclusions that that definitely validates this other study, right? Because having us and being exposed to the internet is really bad. Well, and and not that I'm trying to pick on my stories or anything, but to 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 dovetail my story number four, which I thought was again an interesting title: vulnerability prioritization. That's oh, like we're going to talk the about that. In the next segment. shiny object. Are we getting it right? Mm. Well, and you know that is, again is another uh, data analysis study that you mm. need to do in your own organization. Right, and there's so many different ways to skin that. Uh, we'll talk about it in the next segment uh, in depth as well. Um, we will, and, and I'll be wearing the same shirt that I was. I wearing will not right now. I, I didn't plan <laughs> I accordingly. You didn't plan ahead. I didn't, <laughs> or but, behind, as the case may be. And, but you know, but what's really interesting, <laughs> uh, uh, you know, about that prioritization is that there are three major companies and a whole bunch of other ones, right, that do vulnerability management. They try and help you prioritize. And there's such a need and a challenge with prioritization that there's whole a whole other sub-industry that has been created to help you prioritize those vulnerabilities. Um, and I find it refreshing that there are newer vendors that are trying to solve the problem more holistically rather than one vendor for this and then one vendor to prioritize and one vendor to patch and one vendor for protection and and one and so on and so forth right uh, and i think that's that's kind of refreshing that we're seeing uh, a kind of consolidation of these things uh because they are becoming a little bit more commodity and not so much you know secret sauce right there's a way to analyze things collect vulnerabilities to do patching to do protection that can offer an acceptable level for organizations today uh which is interesting right mm -hmm. Um, I did want to talk about TeamViewer for a moment because uh, TeamViewer yeah. is essentially a backdoor, uh, a legitimate backdoor. I, I, it's kind of, right? Like it's, it's like a. I've been using it for a couple decades. Right. I mean, one. but it's. I mean, it's a commercial back office. I mean, let's let's be frank, right? Um, but it it has. There's a lot of companies that use it. There are, and there's a a backdoor that can give you the. Um, allow so let's see could be exploited by remote attackers to steal the system password right ntlm hash i mean I, ntlm v2 hash if we're being specific about it but yeah sure so i mean a few thousand bucks is, for a, is, a password cracking look at rig any, and, any piece of software yeah i mean any piece of software that has a file extension that has some sort of smb um kind of feature or set with inside of it like we seen this back uh it was a couple months ago i think with what was it sharepoint or exchange or something i mean zoom, that's kind of the zoom, point of zoom had zoom and skype have also had vulnerabilities where you can access oh that's what it was i think it was skype yeah yeah you send you send a, a you know a an smb or a, a URL, url that's um, uri a, a uri with smb colon yeah. slash slash right and that's prevalent it, there's been browser vulnerabilities in the past skype vulnerabilities yeah, I mean, Zoom that's vulnerabilities. how that's how smb works right that's what it's designed to do it tries to make that authentication so the fact that they're doing this with team viewer is it's an interesting way to do it because it just has to be embedded in a website <clears throat> so within like an yeah. iframe or something which is kind of scary uh and we were actually looking at this a couple years ago uh the fact that it was as simple as it is is you know but there are other pieces of software that do do this that have not been recorded on now so, uh, Tyler, question, question for you and in and anyone else too um <coughs> I, i've spoken with a few companies especially recently right that 
do this kind of whitelisting protection. You know, we spoke to Micah at Elastic about the memory protections. Can you essentially take a client like TeamViewer or Skype or Zoom or whatever it is and say, yeah, I know this functionality is in the app that they can access these URIs, but you know what? If this app tries that, I just want to block it and prevent it. And, and that's like a, it is kind of, I don't want to say whitelisting because it's not, but it's basically uh, wrapping, putting protections around the app that it can only do what it's intended to do. But if it has this intended functionality of accessing URI, I don't want to allow that for any of my users. I tend, tending to believe that this is a valid defense uh, to help protect your users from applications exposing too much functionality and limiting that down to avenues that could be exploited, right? But that would probably it's, slow it's, us down as attackers, right? Some of that, some of that though, is inherent into the operating system itself, right? Mm. The way in which applications, uh, you know, what the functionality that applications have, they is inherit a, from a the operating system. What DLLs yep. or function libraries are bringing in, or even how the operating system and API calls are being handled. Uh, as part of maybe another function that that has to be relied upon. Right. So it gets kind of complicated, I think, and that's why it ends up being an issue is because it's easier to make it work than to drill down that deep. Yeah, yeah. I, I think protection that can do that well, uh, I have some more confidence in, in protecting bad things from happening within our applications. And, and that's kind of where I'm seeing the market go uh, in, in some newer newer firms that I'm I'm talking to. Uh, what else we got? Can I double back on the prioritization? Yeah, because we, we kind of just we didn't One, talk about it much. Real quickly, I, I want to throw out there that the PCI data security standard sort of introduced the idea of prioritization. Nobody picked up on it. And nobody does it as early as 2010 with the release of version two. But uh, they 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 tweaked it, and when version three came out in 2013, they give you the opportunity as a company to say you determine what the risk is. Come up with a criteria for your you know for your own company based on whatever, and 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 then figure out how to you know categorize all the vulnerabilities that are discovered. They didn't call it prioritization. But they give you the opportunity to set your own rules, whereas most companies just defer to whatever the scan engine they use gives as their CVE score or CVSS score or whatever it is. Um, it, it, you know, every company hates to have to run down the 37 or whatever the number was you were using, 90 million vulnerabilities that are out there, and they've got to you know get them all remediated and patched within 30 days. I, I just want to throw out there you know, as a nod to PCI, that they introduced the idea of prioritization long before any of the companies that are this, you know, and I think the scan engine companies were the first ones to started doing it, you know, a year and a half, two years ago. Our, our, our alma mater, Paul, was, mm. I think, one of the first. Um, and my first question to them was, are you letting the companies set it based on their prior criteria, or are you telling them what Tenable thinks is, is prioritization? And I have yet to meet a company that's doing prioritization for whatever reason that is letting the customer sort of you know, set the controls and, 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 and tune it according to their 
needs, which is the, you know, again, I acknowledge that's the reality. Everybody yeah. And, just, no, and a lot of that did def- change. I think for a long time, Jeff, the companies were not allowing uh, their customers to recast the risk score. Mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. changed because we were able to find so many vulnerabilities because the scanning engines got better and our attack surface got much larger. Therefore, we granted that capability to customers across the board from several different, you know, all products to say you can basically customize the score. However, that has bred very concerning things for me as a security professional. In fact, Todd and I and and Matt talked about this in the webcast because there were in the U.S. uh, 7.6 million medium level and I believe mm-hmm. Todd defined that as a 4.1 it's to a, four, right, to a 7.9 seven. or something like that, mm-hmm. right? Just shy of eight, uh, but yep. above a four is considered medium. Yep. And to me, and, and, and Todd largely did, agreed with my you know, assessment as well, that it, we draw the same conclusions in that those are the juicy ones for attackers because, because it's not critical, it means... People maybe aren't likely to pay as much attention to it, right? It's not low right. where I got to work really hard to get anything out of it, right? Medium right. is that sweet spot where people aren't paying attention to it as much and patching it as quickly, but it gives you a lot more than a low, uh, so less than a 4.0 on the CVSS scale and depending on what version, right? right. And therefore, that's a, a really significant risk to the organization, and I've demonstrated in previous webinars uh, fairly recently that you can, the mediums tend to be, and what I love is like web application vulnerabilities, right? They give you a foothold that you can definitely go to the next vulnerability that might be another medium and get shell access. So like two mediums Mm. are a critical, but no one's patching the, not no one, but you're not as inclined to pay attention to and patch those mediums because it's not critical, right? And, and, and mm-hmm. what, what do we, how do we define critical? I mean, we've talked about this concept from low to pwned, I think was a, yeah. a Chris Gates yep. thing from back in the day, right? And mm-hmm. when I was working at Tenable, I would evangelize this at, as their product evangelist. I would evangelize this and go, you can't just ignore things based on a score that's scoring the vulnerability itself. You have to contextualize it. And Absolutely. I think that's what bred that whole sub... Uh, category in vulnerability management of helping you prioritize it right i also think that's what you know larry and tyler are really you know squirming in their seats right now because that's what they do as pen testers right you string together a couple of mediums to get to your end goal because they maybe they patch the criticals and the lows aren't enough to really do much with the lows may give you some information to help you exploit those two mediums basically right I remember there was a time when we, when I actually had enough time to start going after patching the mediums. God, that's got to be at least 15 years ago. Now it's hard enough. You have to run to keep up with the highs and the criticals. Um, so it, and, yeah, and that's I'm where I'll, I'll argue all day long with people that are against automation. Because in order to get there today, Lee, to your point, you got to yeah. have some automation, right? You just you have to be really good at patching and really good at patching doesn't mean you're just patching their criticals really good at patching is you're patching a good you're patching all the criticals in a good percentage of mediums in Mm -hmm. less than 30 or 60 days based on their release right and even still that's hard i even like to see faster i like to see a hard stance on less than 30 days we're patching all that stuff but you know todd also presented metrics on the citrix remote code execution vulnerability 
And he's like, you know, there was like 10% that patched in the the first couple of weeks. And then it was a slow kind of rise from there because it's still hard to patch stuff. And I'm like, if we don't nail this automation piece to really be able to patch our infrastructure, we're screwed. Right. Yeah, I, I'm not, I am one of those ones that is not a fan of automation, but it's, it's not, it, it's, it is to some degree the way that you describe it and you're opposed to it. But I acknowledge that automation is necessary. What I object to is, uh, in, in my experience, the, the, the companies that rely on automation and that's all they do. Yeah. There, no. is, there is no, you know, special attention or right. manual intervention. Automation is a tool. It, it's that. a tool in your arsenal. It's a Jeff. tool. Yeah. Yes. It's not, it's not the be all end all, but our industry, unfortunately, and, and you know, we could point fingers in, at probably a hundred companies, you know, sort of sell the automation is, you know, set it and forget it. Mm. Even, even to this day, or there's no way you can possibly keep up. Let us do it for you. And, and, and you know, that's a variation on a theme, but that, that's the side of automation that I object to not. Yeah. It's, it's, it's great to use automation. There's no way to scale manual processes for the amount of data that's flowing in your network these days. You've got to use automation, but you yeah. also have to still do something manual at the end of the day. And you're to, exactly right, to, Jeff. Like, where in the scale do you fall? Like, I'm right. not going to use automation at all versus I just want to automate everything and not, and not do anything, right? The answer is somewhere in between, but there's a lot of variance there, which is where yeah. I think we should be in the kind of points of contention right i don't want the points right. of contention to be no automation versus complete automation because in no, either right. case that's the wrong approach the approach is right. somewhere in between and where in between do we fall it's a hybrid yeah. it's a hybrid cloud i agree yeah of security hybrid cloud hybrid <laughs> automation hybrid automation hybrid right. security well i mean you can you can do a you can do a crap load of work with automation and get rid of, i mean You've also got to categorize. You've got systems that you're just, you know, going to push all the patches on it because it doesn't matter. If it goes wrong, you're just going to re-image it. To the other end of the scale where if you breathe on it sideways and it falls over, it's going to cost you a lot of money. And somewhere in the middle of your business systems, and you can't automate some of that. So we're at least able to knock off the low-hanging fruit and some of the higher fruit. But it seems like some of the things that come up are um, What's interestingly, much more it, complicated. And it's interesting what you said is that I think if you have automation that frees up your time enough to do projects that make your infrastructure not fragile enough so that when you breathe on it, it falls over and then enables yeah. you to put it in that automation category, those are the projects we should be working on, right? Because we shouldn't have stuff in our uh, you know, enterprises today or businesses today that when you breathe on it, it falls over. And we all well, know where those systems are, right? We want to make those systems more resilient so we can reach some level of automation getting patches to them. But it's hard to get there if you're not automating the boring stuff, right? Well, there's also a class of systems that you won't be able to make that. Like PLCs will fall over if you send them a malformed packet, but you isolate those. You don't put them out on, your, on the internet or your, or your main backbone. You hope you and, isolate those, although... But, the Israeli systems that were running the water system that had 4G connections, they weren't necessarily isolated, which has been my example lately of where isolation is absent and has gone wrong. But 
also speaks to the maintenance of the so like isolation and maintenance are in two completely separate disparate camps right yes yeah I, i'll say it now paul and i'll and i'll you know we can talk about it later offline but i i had this idea that's probably best suited for a webinar for us but you know i had this thought in the last day or two um we we talk very often about the maturity of security organizations and the need to you know attain a certain level of maturity before certain things kick in before you can take full advantage of a lot of the things that we talk about what what i'm curious and interested in maybe putting together a webinar about is okay so you're not a mature organization how do you become mature mm. what you know what are the what, you know what are the the first you know prioritized approach the five to, steps to being a security maturity becoming yeah or secure. even just starting down that road you yeah know, is it just go out and buy a bunch of technology probably mm, probably not, not. It, is it going and getting a bunch of certs probably, probably not, not. It, you know is it go out and hiring people that you can't afford and you don't know what they're doing anyway probably not but you know what okay we're a immature organization but we want to do the right thing what do we do I think that would be an interesting webinar to do. And, and I think if we focus that on process, right? Yes. Because yes, tools, tools and people can come later, but defining yep. the processes, the top five processes that you should have in place, right? Then maybe following up with, here's the kind of people you might want, here's the kind of tools you might want, how you tie those together yep. to implement those four processes or five processes, right? But defining what those five processes are would be really interesting. Yeah, and and it's funny you mentioned process, and I have a slide deck from about twenty two years ago <laughs> that we could probably use to to you know spur the conversation because I don't think it's changed, especially from a process perspective. No, how I, you, I, how you do security at a process level has not changed from day one. Completely agree. I too have slides that are probably twenty years old that talk about process over anything else and largely yeah, the only right. problem is 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 being able to get you know the the modern version of powerpoint to actually load them yeah <laughs> that's another problem <laughs> so it's okay jeff you probably have a printed copy and we could probably recreate them from that printed copy i got a, like or a I, really old keynote presentation that won't load in anything anymore <laughs> oh, oh my goodness <laughs> so i was telling i was telling lee about this box that I discovered um, in our basement of th stuff that I thought was lost or stolen, and in it was a bunch of stuff like this. Yes. Oh. Does that have the garbage file on it? It might. It might. It looks oh, like it, the, the same might, color diskette from. We've got one in the studio too, the the uh, yellow well, floppy from Hackers, which I still maintain that all of us being friends, we should know that that place where I hit that thing one time and we should just know what that is. <laughs> yeah. The body. <laughs> it could be a body. It could be a, well, back then it was a floppy disk. Now it might be a micro SD card, but. You know, I didn't post that as, as a story speaking of floppies, but who was it? I, I just posted the story. Somebody, somebody, some government agency is still using. Oh, it was Boeing, not government. It was Boeing mm. is is still using three and a half. And I should grab. I'll, I'll add that story to my stories uh, after the show. But uh, I just posted it on Twitter, and and I and I uh, tagged Sec Evangelism Chris Quebeca because she's you know been 
going after Boeing the last couple months. Um, but they were, you know, there was a big news story that they're using three and a half, three and a half inch floppies to, to push patches and updates out to their planes. That was the up, that was the update for the seven forty seven four hundred. Yep. Good, bad, indifferent. Better well, than a um, five and a quarter inch. But and but a, after that, was it a ten inch? No, it was a nine eight, inch. Eight, we, eight we, inch. It was an eight. It was an eight, 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 inch, we, eight we, inch. We had a funny segment on the show years ago about three and a half inch, five and a quarter inch, and then it was eight eight inch floppy. Is the one after that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's eight then, inches and floppy. <laughs> and. Then, <laughs> but then before well, that it was like real the real like a, a tape like a physical the tape. nine track tape yes. yeah uh and somewhere there was uh punch tape and then Ball before the punch those two well ticker and punch, punch there was tickers and then punch cards right there was a ticker tape right. too but i mean you know the 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 nuclear launch codes uh up until just the last year or so they finally came out and said they're updating it that they've been they've been going and that's i think what was the impetus for the the time in the last couple of years where we've talked about 8 inch floppies the nuclear launch codes were still going out on 8 inch floppies i thought that was all automated with the whopper well, I was going to bring that up a little bit earlier. You know, the lessons learned from you know totally relying on automation. I mean, that goes yes. back to war games. It did. That war games did absolutely address that exact issue, Jeff. You're absolutely correct. Nineteen eighty-three. Yes. <laughs> anyway, probably back when you were at NSA when the Reagan administration during the Reagan uh, administration, little, right? Well, a little bit before I started in 86. Yeah. War Games was uh, sneakers came out while I was at NSA go. and doing the red teaming thing. So that was that was so cool. Uh any other stories? What else we got? Tyler, what do you got? Man, that cell phone one was really interesting, the Revolt LTE one. Yes. That Is that one, uh, $7,000 worth of equipment can eavesdrop on cell phones? was the kind of yeah. sensational it looked a little sensational but reading through some of the the way in which they're doing it with like a software defined radio and how the it has to do with the the cryptography and the way the headers get handed off because everything uses um data lte so you're basically mm-hmm. having that rtp stream and if you're within range if you've got the s the uh, software defined radio set up and you've got the ability to capture the header files that initiate the call in plain text, you can then make a audio out of that, if I remember right. And is, uh, does I that still rely be, on really, um, an MC catcher to get the initial it, handshake? Uh, so essentially it's, it's like using that, except they're just doing it with the software-defined radio, and then they're using the cryptological flaw gotcha. with inside LTE so they're, they're not trying to man in the middle. They're sniffing, essentially. Yeah, they're sniffing the mm-hmm. RTP stream. Yep. So sniffing, it was and very then, interesting. Uh, uh, re- effectively recovering their symmetric shared keys to be able to decrypt it. Mm. Yep. And that's so. the part that's reliant on the plain text. I, I mean, so, I, 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 I've always felt a slight increase in security when using, you know, 4G uh, technology for internet and or, you know, cellular communications, just making calls. A slight I think versus does, right? Wi-Fi, right? Versus going over the internet. I felt a slight advantage, but knowing, I want to say it was ShmooCon like pre-2010 when I started seeing some of the initial research, and there was even research before that 
that was doing things like MZ catchers and, and intercepting the, the technology. Uh, so this didn't seem like anything necessarily new in concept, right? Just a newer application of the Just stuff we've been talking about. In a cheap, yeah, and the costs have come down. Much like Wi-Fi, where we saw the cost come down dramatically in a very short period of time, right? Like original 802.11b gear, right, Larry? I want to say yeah. back in the earlier 2000s, ish maybe even pre-2005 before we started the show like it was still kind of expensive to be able to intercept yeah. wi-fi 802.11 traffic right but then yep i mean i mean heck the cards just to be able to do like those orinoco silver cards yeah. that would do uh 64 or 40-bit web those were Ooh. like 265 dollars and if you wanted to do the 128 or 104-bit web yep uh, with the orinoco gold cards those were like 350 bucks and I remember buying I a, a specific so. Cisco. Uh, I think it was. I, I don't remember which the PCMCIA. Yeah, the the three fifty the Cisco mm-hmm. three fifty card. Mm-hmm. It was named three fifty because it cost three hundred and fifty dollars. Right. And I remember got because that was like in order to do one of the tacks to get in monitor mode and packet injection. That's the card you had to have. Right. And even before that, it was slightly more expensive, but dramatic decrease in the cost. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and especially has been a constant over time. I feel like with uh, LTE, 4G, the cost is still much higher, but still going down in terms of being able to intercept. Yeah, but there's uh, still a lot uh, of security through security tell. there too. Yeah. No, yeah. I was just saying, like from a cellular provider standpoint, like the technology is it's a little bit more complicated. There's not as many people that understand the back end workings of of all the you know S7 data and how those. Uh, protocols are all being handled uh, provider to provider even mm. uh, and that makes a big difference in pretty much everything you do interesting so yeah the call being handed off from provider to provider is still relying on s7 is like an old pots telephone system kind of stuff right. right pots 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 <laughs> pop quiz yeah. what does pots stand for plain old, plain old telephone, telephone, system. Plain old telephone system yeah how about pstn instead if you prefer Publicly switched Provider telephone network. Signal carrier trans. <laughs> Publicly I like Tyler network. sounded. Tyler sounded better though. <laughs> I don't know my which phone. one was more accurate, but Tyler <laughs> sounded way better. My waiter's on after that one because it was pretty deep. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but yes. I at least got it. Come on now. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the interesting thing is having conversations with um, the network team about what kind of uh, connections we're using with reaching to our video teleconferencing systems. When you're talking to those guys, they'll talk about when is it going to the PSTN system versus uh, over this or that. You have to know what the acronyms mean, but yes. you can't use those acronyms with end users. They'll, they they check out. Yeah, I have it, no idea because it goes back to basically VoIP and telephone switching technology, right? Who, who remembers having to dial nine before one before making a long-distance phone call? Uh-huh. Yeah. We had enough issues. We had to change it from nine to eight on our Fair phone enough. system. We yeah, at, it was at not- the lab. We had our own five E. Twenty-four million dollar phone. Switch. What was that called? It was like watts or something like that. Oh, the watts lines. I remember those. Watts lines. Yeah. Well, yeah it's cool. interesting. We uh, in early days, I feel like we were. If you're old enough, you were involved with not just the security of computer systems and the 
even Ethernet, but even before Ethernet, the networking part, but the phone technology also kind of fell in your purview of maybe you didn't run those systems, but you had to provide uh, security kind of consulting to the long distance charges are no joke, man. Yeah, to the <laughs> telephone system. I mean, I remember working for the university. We had our own telephone switching system for the university, uh, and we would consult, you know, with them. And they were like a dotted line into the networking uh, group, basically. Uh, and I would actually work with them and and had not a whole lot of conversations, but sometimes have conversations about because there were still modems connected and it tied into. I feel like that's yeah. not true today. Most things are VoIP and going over the internet. Right. Probably yeah. most people don't know what it's like to what it means keep, to busy keep, automotive. Keep mm. thinking that, Paul. Well, right. yeah. So there's probably still a lot of that technology around today. Yep. Well, I'm wondering how many of our listeners know what it means to take the phone off the hook. Right. But to Jeff's well, point, still, still. Uh, so when next time uh, we've got folks back here in studio. I'm thinking it's 2021, realistically speaking. Uh, I do have a a local uh, connection, pun intended, um, that is willing to take us on a tour of uh, telephone network switching. I won't say which company, but I've got an in. And I'm like, can we take a tour? He's like, yeah, absolutely. He's like, you know about that stuff? I'm like, yeah, hackers kind of like that's where we got our start, right? <laughs> the term <laughs> hacker originates from hacking phone systems. It's like, oh, I'd love to give you guys a tour. It's awesome. Like, he was just like cool. impressed that there was actually people out there that knew, you know, what this technology was, right? Yeah, when do we go? The next time you guys yeah. are up, next time you guys are, are, are here, we'll, we'll make it uh, happen. Are we going to have Johnny uh, recording it live? If we have permission, absolutely. Absolutely. Awesome. Yeah. Awesome. That would be fun. You know, I used to work for the phone company. Is that when you worked at NSA, Jim? Is that? Oh no, wait. <laughs> no, a, a different three-letter agency, AT and T. Say he had, yeah, I was going to say he had one of those things on his head, very similar to what he's got now—the head, the switchboard operator—and mm-hmm. he would do the yep. plug from one to the other. Yes, that's old school. Tor exit nodes is an interesting one as well. If we're looking for something, uh, so a, interesting. Uh, back to my university days is another example. We had one of the largest Tor exit nodes on our network at the university. Before, <laughs> I remember like, you calling me that day. right before people really knew like what Tor was and Tor exit nodes were. I was like, I had this event, and Larry, I probably did yep. call Larry, and it was like, dude, have you heard of this before? What is going on? And but what I and Larry, I think years ago, uh, based on an incident, we basically came to the same conclusion that I think my story number ten is talking about that the anonymity and security of Tor is largely dependent on who's controlling your exit node. Note, yep. And we did speculate at the time. We didn't present any evidence, but the wonderful thing about this podcast is we get to speculate that um Evil people who are not affiliated with any government could control an exit node, or your government or someone else's government could also control an exit node. Therefore, the anonymity of Tor is solely really based on who controls the exit nodes. And while that, the, the beauty of Tor is that it is an onion network and that it would be difficult for anyone to control all the nodes, right? And you would get a portion of that traffic. Tyler, is that kind of where you were going? Yeah, correct well? me if I'm wrong here, though. And 
the the only the only thing that having an exit node provides you is the IP address of traffic leaving. The whole point of the Onion protocol is to strip back the layers, and no one knows if the next hop is the last hop where the data then right. is stripped down from the client. Mm-hmm. Now, if you consider having visibility across multiple nodes or a good portion of those nodes, or the master nodes, Tyler, aren't, aren't node there? Sorry, leaving. Tyler, aren't there different levels of nodes as well? Or there was back in the day. I don't know if the protocols evolved. Yeah, there, there's different levels, and then there's different trust levels of, of nodes, and you can specify nodes that you want to use or not use, mm. and that you know also has a trust level or factor. And then the visibility in which those nodes are logging or not logging is based on your trust level. But really, I don't think there's anything being seen as far as the traffic goes. That's because that's how the Onion protocol works. However, you can make some inferences on, hey, this IP came into this node and exited this node if you have enough visibility over top of all those nodes and can do some very uh, good layer two and layer three analytics Mm. uh, very quickly, then, yeah, you can infer, hey, this is the real IP. It's coming out of this IP. Now you know where they're going or what they stood up and where they came from, and that allows you to then do further tracking if you've got other data sets and other information around that. Yeah, you just just need to control... You just need to control and be able to aggregate data from enough, from a, uh, you know, enough exit nodes enough. and enough relay nodes to be able to effectively reconstruct those multiple layers of onions. Uh, and and based on what I'm seeing in this article, you know, conceivably possible given that they're saying they controlled 380 exit nodes, and this is just where the ge- traffic ends up on the back of the general internet. Now, if they can control 380 exit nodes, what's keeping them from populating enough relay nodes in there and being able to aggregate that data mm. but but what they were doing was you know ssl stripping the H- HTTPS downgrade attacks so you can you can put some plugins in your browser to stop that gotcha um, yep sorry tyler no yeah so that i mean that that provides you another layer of visibility that you can then use to do other inferences and aggregate more data based on the header so where the data is going what kind of uh, packets are in there, what protocol it's using. So there's some additional info you can get by doing that stripping. But I I think if that's all they're using to determine this, then yeah, there's a substantial amount more Tor exit nodes being leveraged for other aggregate data analysis. And, and I'd argue that that data is just the data coming out of those exit nodes. Like, what would I use a Tor exit node for if I'm looking to maybe exfiltrate some data? Uh, maybe I've got you know, a million... Uh, usernames and passwords that I've been able to uh, exfiltrate, and I'm sending those somewhere and I don't want it to be traced. Well, someone in possession of an exit node in which that is passing through, they potentially get that data and could use it for their own purposes before I ever release it or or something of the like. So in this case, they were trying to capture Bitcoin transactions and redirect them. Mm. And as the exit nodes got reported, it went from 23% down to like they're under 10%. They're, they're, They're finding and getting rid of them. But still, crazy stuff. Yeah. Uh, uh, I did Paul, co- I, remember, I remember you Go telling ahead. me the story about your Tor exit node, and you asking me, hey, have you heard of this Tor thing? And I'm like, no, only a little bit. So you explained it. And there was a group that was standing up a Tor exit node for research mm-hmm. so they could see what type of traffic was coming out of it and what it was being used for. And you called me and you're like, yeah, dude, my bandwidth just went away. and Like, like literally went away. And you, I tell you what, at the time, 
it was not an insignificant amount of bandwidth oh, no. at all. No, like at, you know, I, I'm I'm thinking back. Like at the time, it was early 2000s, um, and your organization probably had one or two gigs to the internet. Yeah, yeah, because we were in the central, and, basically the central pop for internet and internet too. Like two. there was a ton of traffic coming through our data center for a whole lot of reasons, which. Next time we're in a physical conference over beers, talk about it more, right? But yeah, yeah. yeah it was yeah. And, significant. And I, and I remember you saying that all of that bandwidth went away. Yep. And when you dug into it some more, it found out that uh, you, the single largest Tor exit node on the planet lived on your network. Yes. Because when they created it, they allowed every protocol through. That's And that's what I was getting at was that there are... Uh, like filtering and rules you can put as to how much bandwidth, how many different protocols can go through. And they basically had opened it all up to say, yeah, yeah. everyone can route through our node with no restriction. And we were funneling enormous amounts of traffic. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, I did want to just touch on this article quickly about um, if your email is hacked, everything is. And I've, I've always felt this way. And I think that so many stories we've covered over the years really comes down to the importance of your email account, right? And this this could be, uh, you know, us as security professionals, we have a number of different email accounts and protect them in various ways for obvious reasons because whether you're an enterprise user or a home user, your email, if someone gets a hold of that, will be abused and, and just pivoted off in so many different ways. And if you're going to put protections around any uh, given account, your email is absolutely one of them. And we've seen this trend in email providers in providing those extra protections in locking down password resets, in offering two-factor authentication, primarily pro offered in the email services because once someone gets control of your email, it, you can pivot and basically take over that person's life, right? And, th and that's basically what this article is reminding us of, which I think as we... Uh, educate our clients and friends and family about the protecting your personal data, one of the first places to turn to is, look, make sure you've got a unique password in your email, make sure you've got two-factor authentication, make sure you've enabled all the protections that are available. Google, I believe, has done a great job, um, and they've pivoted this into their product uh, in their latest version of reCAPTCHA, uh, which is not the reCAPTCHA that we uh, know and mostly hate, um, but it's automated bot detection, right? Uh, they've taken what's working for Google properties and made that a, as a commercial offering in, in their sponsor and just disclosing that. However, you've noticed that if you log into your Gmail account, even your Hotmail account and other email accounts now, when you log into those from a different IP, it goes, yeah, you need to give me something more. Like, I need to text your phone. I need to ask for some two-factor. It sets off alarms. You get an email. Someone logged into your Gmail address from someplace weird, right? So they've they've recognized this that email is really the one of a, a very critical service for this everyone. Is, yeah, this is going to get worse though, too, right? Like if we oh, this we is something this is a I've been working on for a while, right? Like SaaS and single sign-on. Mm -hmm. like this is the two-headed dragon here that people don't realize if they don't have two-factor set up or if their email is compromised, where's your two-factor going to? Where's your password reset? How do you log into Slack? Yep. Uh, anything that's associated with single sign-on or has a SAML token, like once you have that email, uh, it's all game over. Like if I get access to your Slack, then I can search. If I get access to your GitHub and it's on single sign-on, then I've got oh, access to your yep. Jira tickets. 
it goes downhill from there. Yeah. Yeah. So, Paul, one of the, one of the things I'm noticing, and you talk about specifically about the the Google doing a great job of that. I, for someone who traveled a lot, mm. um, I would argue that they did a really good job. Like they could tell what I was coming from my home network because yep. I was coming from a specific service provider and from which device and, and from and your so IP forth, or an IP range that you would normally come from, right? Uh, yeah. yeah. Or or a, a specific service provider and those types of things. Then they started the uh, the cellular provider started introducing IPv6, mm-hmm. and then that was a shit show uh, because every time I switched over to a cellular, it was you're coming from a different IPv6 address. You're in the United States, and they couldn't geolocate it. Give me your two factor. So, yeah, so uh, give me your two factor, or we'll just say plain blocked. You know, you can't log in. Period. Mm-hmm. Um, and then so I started getting around some of those things by you, you connect your home your your phone to the vpn yep that comes out of my home address and it would work great uh and then it would only happen that when i would travel mm. so home and local areas you know within the state of rhode island um it knew i was coming from these locations through like ai and machine learning and that type of stuff and knew that that was good the problem is now that i leave so home so infrequently mm-hmm. that going down the street and switching to the cellular network to go to the dump to take the trash triggers the account blocks right because i'm always coming from home now yeah you've trained the ai very well to say that you're not going to leave your house right exactly uh, you know, we're the ai mm. well, that's one of the that's one of the frustrating things about security is the things that we you know the security designers they come up with all these great clever ways of of providing good security but it's inconvenient and awkward and 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 makes life more difficult so we find ways to avoid and circ- circumvent them and, right. and that's that's not a new you know that that's goes back hundreds of years well Tyler and I ran into this uh, <clears throat> a couple of weeks ago or last week right we're trying to help someone out and they were like I trust you. Like, here's my email account. Like, just help me, right? And I'm like, Tyler, can can you help me help this person? And Tyler, of course, being the awesome person, he's like, yeah. And I'm like, all right, I have access to their email. And like, no one was in the right place at the right time to get the two factor to their phone to. And I was going to relay the message to Tyler to allow Tyler Hmm. to log it. So like, now it becomes a difficult thing to get help, right, Tyler? Like to help someone, you almost you not just need their username and password you need their phone too to be able to actually help them uh if they're in a really tricky spot and they're trying to get out of it which happens now because there's data breaches and like this article saying people take control of your email or your social media accounts and bad things happen yeah it's it's interesting what it takes to get logged into email on a a computer that has not been seen or used like right regardless of ai and like geolocation like even if your browser's never been seen or you're coming from a unique uh, device ID, which they leverage some of those advertising IDs in the browser. Yep. Uh, that throws a flag in. That second factor saves, I think, saves a lot of people. Honestly, it does. I think we have does. a lot more breach data, a lot more personal information out there if we didn't have those kind of things. Yeah, it's not it's not the best method, but it's better than not having anything. And I wish people would just find an easy way to get two factor up and going. <laughs> yeah, I'd Great. say it's a lot better than not doing anything. Mm. All things considered. Well, cool. Changed my mind. 
Yeah. Uh, any but, other, but, uh, anything else you want to talk about? No, let's call it a day. Well, uh, that will conclude the news portion. Make sure you stay tuned for our pre-recorded interview uh, with Michael from Vicarious. Certainly uh, worth a listen. Michael has awesome uh, thoughts on vulnerability prioritization uh, and remediation. Stay tuned for that. Are you an enterprise dissatisfied with overpriced analytics software that can't keep up with modern data? If so, then GraphWell is the solution for you. GraphWell is an unstructured data analytics platform for enterprises who demand total data visibility across their network. GraphWell lets your security team go beyond the SIM and fuse data sources to correlate and answer questions you didn't know needed to be asked. Go to gravwell.io forward slash security weekly for an unlimited data trial and gain uncompromising visibility today. Elastic Security empowers security teams everywhere to prevent, detect, and respond to threats quickly through a unified solution. And it's free and open, putting you in control. Use Elastic Security to eliminate blind spots by analyzing all of your data, no matter its volume, format, or age. Stop threats at scale with automated threat and anomaly detection. And arm every analyst with fast search and integrated case management. Download or try Elastic Sim for free and experience the benefits of an open security solution backed by world-class security research at securityweekly.com forward slash Elastic. Welcome back, everyone, to Paul's Security Weekly. Uh, make sure you visit securityweekly.com forward slash webcast. We've got a couple coming up, one with Rapid7, Todd Beardsley. will discuss the findings from the National Internet Cloud Exposure Report on August 13th and how to create and run a conference from the geniuses behind Layer 8 and Wild West Hacking Fest. Our next technical training on August 27th will teach you about Boothole, Sig Red, and SNMP Bleed, the best practices to prioritize and remediate uh, now. Or visit securityweekly.com forward slash on demand for our previously recorded webcasts. Uh, I would like to welcome Mr. Jeff Mann, who's with us for this segment. Jeff, welcome. Happy to be here as always, Paul. Very nice. And, and missing Rhode Island, which is, as we've learned, a lot smaller than even Israel. Right. Yes. Yes, it is. Mr. Lee Neely is here with us. Lee, welcome. Ah, great to be here. Looking forward to an interesting conversation. Absolutely. Here with us for this interview is Michael Azraf. He has more than 10 years of experience in the startup world. He's been part of six different startups, filling out several positions up to VP of R&D, both on the technical and operations side. In his last pos position at Atlas, Michael built and managed R&D development. He led the Israeli team of the startup on a daily basis uh, from day one to the release of the product. Uh, you can find out more about Michael's company called Vicarious at securityweekly.com forward slash Vicarious. Michael, welcome to the show. Hello, everyone. Hello. Hello from the holy city. It's wonderful to have you on, Michael, uh, and here talking about vulnerabilities and vulnerability management uh, and your take on it as it's a hot topic uh, here in the show and in many enterprises and businesses across the world uh, that are basically faced with how do I manage all of these vulnerabilities and get rid of them. You've got a unique take on it, uh, which is one of the reasons why I'm excited to have you on. So I'll turn it over to you to kind of uh, give an introduction as to uh, what Vicarious is and what you're working on. Yeah. Uh, thanks, Paul. So, uh, yeah. So, you know, uh, when we started the company, uh, one of my co-founders, Roy, which was on the micro interviews uh, uh, last week, uh, he was a CISO for, for a big organization in Israel. And he was always telling me about these huge, huge reports 
that you're getting, like mm-hmm. the VA scanning report. Uh, and at the end of the day, like the organizations uh, uh, struggle with few things uh, around the support. Uh, and after we started the company, like I, we went to uh, to a few customers and we asked them about the support. Like we had one client with uh, uh, 50,000 assets having over 600,000 findings in his report. Like the poor guy was looking at us and like, what the hell should I do with uh, with this report? Uh, and then when we started ringing down, like every every one of them, like we started to figure out like which patches they need, they need to install, which which configuration changes they need to propagate. He was like telling us like, listen guys, my IT teams, like the, the, the IT department of the organization are not gonna let me uh, patch 90% of the abilities. Like I can do it, it, it will cause downtime, it will cause problems with users that some of the uh, some of the software will change uh, so you have both uh, the stress and, and and the problems around uh, how many vulnerabilities you have the second thing is that you have the internal conflicts like you're always in, in internal conflicts between the security and the IT like IT wants to patch every like IT doesn't want to patch anything security wants to patch everything uh, and at the end of it, you have tools that can help you solve some parts of the process, but but they can't really uh, take everything. And once you will have a product that takes everything, it's probably going to be an orchestrated solution that is going to maybe uh, fix some of the uh, discrepancies and some of the problems along the process. But at, at the end of the day, it's not a consolidated solution. So even if you're going to patch stuff or something is going to get into the patching cycle and it's going to take like two, three months until it's getting patched and, and, and then the vulnerability is remediated, even then you're gonna run another scan. So you're gonna have all the gaps that you have from the previous scan, plus all the new ones, uh, all the new vulnerabilities, all, 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 the, new pa- all the new patches that, that have emerged since, uh, uh, since the last time you did the vulnerability assessment scan. So you're always, like, you're always reactive and even this reactivity has a huge lag of like three to six months that you're always running after one, the vulnerabilities, uh, second, the patches, and the patching cycles inside the organizations. Uh, so this is what some of our, our guiding lines, once we started Vicarious, like we're t- we, we are trying to first consolidate this solution and give, uh, uh, and give tools to help organizations to secure themselves even if they can't really patch stuff so uh yeah it's interesting michael like there's three challenges and i've I've been in this exact position where i've got to find the vulnerabilities that's step one two i've got to maybe convince some folks to patch it right three is uh, i may also have to convince people to remediate it and maybe steps two and three i have to do both of those right like i need to push the patch out but i also need to maybe update my endpoint um you know security software i need to update my configuration somewhere. And so now there's like two or three different groups that may, you know, may have to work together to do that. And if I want a cohesive process, as you've described, I have to tie basically three or more different products together with some kind of automation to do that, which is difficult. Yeah. And even, and even on top of that, like the, like, even if you're a very advanced organization and you, you, you're trying to like, you, you have some automation program on top of that, you have even another tool. Like you have, you have an orchestrated solution right. that that's that's supposed that's supposed to like. So you have even more tools that, that you need to have that you need to handle. So it doesn't it doesn't necessarily limit the problem. It is just create more management overhead. 
Right. Yeah, I just keep adding more. Like I have my vulnerability scanner, and then I add another product to help me prioritize it, and then I have another product that helps me report on it and automate it and tie it all together. And I, organizations really have all types of different solutions they're trying to string together. Lee, there's one. There's one more piece that I that hit me, and that is, you've got the CIO or equivalent saying, "Okay, when you do that, don't break anything." Right. Yeah. Exactly. And. How, where where are you guys fitting to help all this? This I'm, I know this is an, a, a really complicated problem set. Where are you focusing? Yes, that, that's that's a good question. Uh, so most of the, like, and we looked at the market as it evolved because the company has been around uh, for, for a while. We look at the market as as it evolved, and 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 what you have today is products that help you fix one of the problems. Like you you, you have products that will that will do the vulnerability assessment scan really, really good. You have product that will do the prioritization, uh, the prioritization piece really, really good. Like they're gonna correlate a lot of data and, and, and stuff like this. You have really good patch management solutions. Uh, but we didn't, like when we started the company, we didn't look at, at, at this problem as a problem that needs to be one orchestrated or needs to be divided between different products. We just said, okay, you have a piece of vulnerable code running inside the organization. You need to fi- you need to find it first. You need to prioritize and understand the criticality of it, and then uh, and then mitigate it. And it's in, in our opinion, it shouldn't be under three platforms. One, so it's it's first a consolidated solution that that takes the whole uh, that takes the whole stack. And second, like if you really look at at the vulnerability assessment market, let's take for example the ADR market or the firewall or the WAF markets. All of them went like one or two generations ahead, like you have next generation antivirus, then you have deep learning. Uh, WAF, you have all this kind of rasp and things like this. Vulnerability management, like the, the, the reactive way that, that we're doing vulnerability management hasn't really changed. Like we have a vulnerability, someone finds a vulnerability in some software, you can either sell it on the dark web for hundreds of thousands of dollars or report it to NVD, then reported back to, to the vendor, then the vendor has like three months years to release the security patch, then everyone needs to understand where the vulnerability is. And then you have the cycle inside the organization, which you need to test the patch, because as you said before, the CIO doesn't want to break everything. If you have a .NET uh, app that is running on a server, you're not going to update the .NET, even though uh, it, it has a security flaws. So like th- this whole process didn't really advance to the world of machine learning, uh, AI, deep learning, etc. So our vision is first to take the entire stack, like provide you one-stop shop, provide you all-in-one vulnerability management and patch management and remediation solution, but on every part of the process, provide you capabilities uh, that are not no, no longer reactive, things that are proactive. So we can... Uh, we can first uh, understand which uh, which binary areas inside the code are inside compiled code, meaning like all, all the stuff that we're doing are completely binary. Uh, understand which techniques are hidden inside third-party software you have. Uh, prioritize it based on, on on the usage inside the organization. So because we know to understand very deeply how software is structured inside the organization, we also know to understand what are the execution properties of, of every asset? So for example, if you have a vulnerability that requires admin privilege, et cetera, we can tailor it back and provide you the patching plus uh, a virtual patch. It's not really virtual patching, we call it patchless protection, uh, which basically wraps uh, the components of the software and memory. Like 
wraps the executables, wraps the sensitive locations inside the libraries. So what, what I like about uh, the solution, Michael, is I have one platform, right? It's helping me identify vulnerabilities. It's helping me prioritize those. And it's helping me with the remediation. I can install the patch if I want to, or I can use your technology to basically protect that application. And the intelligence tells me that, hey, there's a vulnerability in, let's say, Firefox, and 80% of your users are using Firefox and they're vulnerable. Like, do you want to just put the protection in there? I'm like, yes, go do that, right? And just kind of simplifying this whole complex problem down to based on usage, uh, risk, and prioritization uh, and leading right to that remediation without several committee meetings about what patch is going to go out and where it's going to go, right? Yeah, exactly. And, and, and I, I think you're starting to touch the last point, like the last part of, of, our, of our solution. So you, you, like most of the processes today, like most of the incidents response uh, today in the organization can be orchestrated and can be automated using uh, tools like uh, XOR and, 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 and like mm -hmm. former Demiso and stuff like this. Uh, some of the operational, like the operational labor that involves both IT and security uh, in organization doesn't like didn't really took this this approach. Like we can't, we don't really see uh, organizations that that will automatically patch 90% of their servers because, because they're simply afraid. So uh, the fact that we have both this, uh, exactly the, the, the intelligence that you said, we know to understand where are the critical points inside, uh, inside your infrastructure. And second, we have the patchless capability that, that allows you uh, to wrap something until you will be able to, to patch or, or if the software is end of life or it's something that was homegrown, mm. you don't have access to the source code, you can just secure it there. We're also adding automation layer on top of everything. So you will be able to define rules like, okay, there is a critical CVE, but there is no patch. Okay, wrap patchless. And once the CVE is out, mm -hmm. uh, start with this group computer, test it, see that there are no crash dumps, uh, ask the users if, if anything has changed in the system, and then move on on the patch cycle. It's awesome. So Je oh, uh, Jeff and then Lee. <laughs> Jeff, I think you're muted. And I've been screaming for the last yeah. <laughs> Uh My apologies. Uh, Michael, you may not be familiar with my role on the show, but I, I am the uh, compliance spoiler. Uh, and, and, and I focus primarily on the payment card industry, PCI. Interestingly enough, the term vulnerability assessment does not appear in the PCI data security standard. So my question, somewhat loaded, but also somewhat uh, a curiosity, I, I was looking at the Vicarious website and you're talking about security assessment and the security cycle. You mentioned vulnerability management, vulnerability assessment. Could you hopefully very quickly just sort of take a step back and and define some of these terms and how they work together the way you see it in typical organizations not trying to trip you up but uh, I, I like to try to level set on terminology so you know what is a security assessment how does vulnerability assessment and vulnerability management how does that all work together in sort of this uh, security cycle that you talk about on your website yeah. So yeah, that's a great question, and I think that uh, security, security in general, like it, uh, like security assessment in general, has three components. The first component uh, is, is is the internal scans, which uh, is what we do. Afterwards, you have the external scans, like scanning uh, public domain websites, scanning uh, I don't know everything that everything that is not inside the perimeter, which actually now 
everything is outside of almost everything is outside of the perimeter <laughs> because work from home yeah uh, so you have the second layer of external uh external risk assessment and then you have let's call it the new layer of uh, of uh trying to figure out like trying to understand attacks before they are uh before they are launched against the organization so it's like companies that are doing a, a, a dark web analysis and trying to figure out whether your organization is going to be targeted so i think that uh that in general uh, the field that that like inside this process uh we're dealing with uh, with the internal risk assessment process uh more specifically uh we're handling uh, uh the the risk assessment and vulnerability management for managed devices uh so mm -hmm. today uh today we're running on the endpoint it can be server it can be uh it can be a server endpoint can be an, and anything that 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 is installable so uh everything that everything a part of that that, that, that is involved inside internal scanning we still don't cover but we're working on it for example uh, uh device scanning etc we still don't do that uh but everything that is related to managed devices is where we are uh where we at um yeah so so pretty much internal assessments great thank you and, and via you need an agent on the endpoint, right, to do everything that we talked about. And I think the industry has come around to realizing that if I'm going to put an agent, I want functionality. And I think you've built great functionality because I, I love And we're going to get into a lot more technical sessions coming up on future segments about that technology inside that does the protection uh, that we call it patchless or, you know, I, the terminology, I, I think has some negative connotation with it, but I've, you know, Michael's briefed me on the technology and I'm super excited about it. So stay tuned, we'll, we'll dive deep into, into that upcoming segments as well. Lee, sorry, you also had a question. So, you know, it's all good. So what I actually wanted to check, as I was listening to Michael describe what he was doing, I felt like we're moving, he's gonna empower an organization to go from, you know, patch all the things to being much more surgical and focused on dealing with the underlying issue and either patching or mitigating as he's describing wrappering uh, objects to keep to, to, to protect them from being exploited and it felt like the net effect could actually I could take an organization and raise their maturity in terms of keeping their stuff secure am I off the deep end here or is that kind of where you are yeah so that that's that's exactly that's like the the, the company tagline is patch dash less uh, vulnerability management and patchless for us means two things first we're going to help you patch wherever it it will affect uh, uh it will affect your cyber hygiene your cyber your cyber risk posture in the best way and we're going to do it with uh, extremely advanced prioritization uh, tools so everywhere it's really really critical for you to patch we're going to tell you and we're going to do it for you uh, and wherever you can do it uh or or, or it's less critical for now just wrap our, our patchless piece and and and, and you, you can still be secure until the point you will be ready to patch uh so yeah that's that's exactly that's exactly uh where we at and i think that matt also described it in in a, in a pretty good way uh, a few weeks ago when, when we talked so I, I i think that by now like you have a pretty established six billion dollar market called vulnerability assessment but i think that like a lot of the vendors in the vulnerability assessment market understand that if you already have an agent, the expectation from you is always on the rise. So they're also adding capabilities like patch management. So the world is starting to shift from vulnerability assessment and vulnerability discovery to vulnerability remediation and vulnerability prioritization because companies uh, companies are tired that, 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 that vendors coming to them and tell them how 
shitty their 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 cyber posture is. They they want something to help them with that. Uh, so yeah, that's that's exactly what, what we are trying to be. We're trying to be an operational tool tool that gaps between uh, the IT and security departments inside the organization and in significantly increase the cyber risk posture of the organization. Yeah, and Michael, you're spot on. When we talk with people um, that have been uh, breached uh, or had a security incident, it's almost never because they didn't know that they had a vulnerability, right? At some level, you know, they may have to dig a little to find it, which speaks to the state of vulnerability scanning and management tools, right? But they know they had that vulnerability. It was in a report somewhere. A sysadmin knew about it. A developer knew about that vulnerability. That's not the problem, right? The problem is fixing the stuff that really matters before you have a breach, right? And so now I can go off and get another vendor, which segues into my question to help me prioritize that. But... Um, I guess in the vicarious solution, how much do I have to tell it what is the most critical and or sensitive and maintain that so that your product knows, uh, like based from me telling it, hey, this is a really super critical asset or does it help me like learn that as it goes or is there a combination? Yes. So, so uh, yeah, I think, Paul, that's that's a great question. Uh, and I think that at the end of the day, and I always tell it to my team internally, like when, when we're working on something, for example, we're adding a new section to the website, I always tell them whatever you do that is manual, that it doesn't pull the data from other source, that doesn't do it automatically, it's just not going to happen. Because if someone is in charge of it and this guy is on vacation, I don't know where he is, uh, he has more important things to do, et cetera, it's not going to get done. And, and, and what you right. said is completely correct. Like most of the big bridges, like even Equifax, they knew about the vulnerability. Right. Uh, but pro- we, we like interviewed probably- actually, Mike, we did. We interviewed the person who was at Equifax uh, during the breach. And he was the, I forget his exact title, but he described exactly that. He's like, oh, no, we, we knew the stuff. We just couldn't, you know, get our stuff together to actually get it fixed in time. Yeah, and, and and you know it's 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 an organization with uh, it's it's an organization. I, I, I'm 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 pretty sure that they have the perfect patch management program. Like that they right. had they had a, a whole team that is doing vulnerability. Mm-hmm. They had a whole team that is doing vulnerability management. But 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 if if you focus on 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 uh, I don't know patching 1,000 flash players that are sealed in an environment that doesn't even open to the DMZ and can't get exploited, instead of uh, you know, patching uh, an Apache Tomcat server that right. has a DMZ connection and is always in memory and running with a strong account, like that—that's—that's that's what happened. You don't have this piece of intelligent and contextualization. And on our platform, you don't need to do like you don't have any manual work. Like we have our own set of rules. We call them X tags. It stands for exploitation tags. We're simply tagging execution of of a software on an asset, and we can do it in various ways. Mm-hmm. You know. Well, Uh, I'm perhaps oversimplifying this and and maybe it's just, you know, everybody knows this and it's just come to me, but it, you know, we've been talking about prioritization for, I don't know, maybe the last year or so it's, it seems to be the next big thing within the security industry. You know, we've got this plethora of vulnerabilities. Now we got to figure out how to prioritize them. And I guess I never really thought through it, but it, it really seems like, uh, instead of looking at the criticality of the vulnerability, you're looking at the criticality of systems. That uh, seems what like a lot of companies are doing. Um, and I guess the hacker in me says, yeah, but it's not just the criticality of systems. It's how it's what's the path to those systems? How difficult or easy is it uh, to get to those systems? And, and uh, 
uh, am I making an accurate perception uh, conclusion and, and am I missing any major components or is it is it does it really boil down to identifying critical systems based on whatever the business uh, criteria is uh, and and the path to those systems is, is there any other major moving parts or is that pretty much it and it's how well you can you can do that in an automated fashion. So, so I, I think I think that that, that like most most of the companies uh, that, that that are doing prioritization today are trying to uh, to, to tie uh, the business uh, uh, the business aspect of a single asset to the criticality level of it, but. Uh, but we don't see it this way. Like, like we don't like. We think that if you have, if you have a vulnerability that that is a low-hanging fruit for a hacker, it, it doesn't really matter because, as I said before, if he's inside, he can do lateral movement and get to your Active Directory, get wherever, wherever he wants. So, we don't really look at at the business context of uh, of of a, of a certain uh, server or an endpoint. We look at what can what can make what can be uh, easily exploitable, and if you will take a look at, at the, the new CVSS um, method of of, uh, of MITRE, they are talking about like you have a whole section of environmental properties where you like like when uh, for example if you have a vulnerability, this vulnerability is required to have a user interaction. This vulnerability is required to have a certain privilege in order to get exploited. So it doesn't, it doesn't really matter like what, what is the server or what is the endpoint as long as this set of rules, this set of properties are applied to this software. And if you have a vulnerability with these properties, you probably should patch it as soon as can or you should protect it in other methods. But we don't really see it as, as a something that is uh, directly tied to the, uh, to the business aspect of, of, of this of this uh, of this digital asset in the organization. Fair enough. Let me ask a, a, a specific question. Uh, not looking for right or wrong, but just your take on it. It's an argument that I used to have when Paul and I were at Tenable over uh, how to respond to, at least from a compliance perspective, because you know Tenable was involved not only in secure security, but also was a is a tool that's used by a lot of companies that are pursuing compliance first, shall we say, rather than just security, mm-hmm. or at least a both end. Um, and and I, I used to argue with Renault, you know, the developer, original developer of Nessus all the time over cryptographic vulnerabilities. Uh, you know, when I was there uh, was when... Uh, 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 SSL and TLS was coming under the gun, and mm-hmm. it was a big deal for the PSI, PCI data security standard. They had to reissue uh, their uh, a version of their security standard uh, based on you know very recent hot off the presses discoveries about cryptographic vulnerabilities as- associated with SSL, and, and then early versions of TLS, which wasn't technically new. Because uh, NIST is the sort of uh, governing authority over the crypto- cryptographic vulnerabilities, or, or, or you know whether a, a cryptographic cryptographic algorithm can still be used or not, or what key length, or so on, so on and so forth. They had they had made announcements a while ago. And so so anyway, my question is: when it comes to something like uh, a cryptographic vulnerability. 
you know, like a, a hashing, like SHA-1 or something like that, where uh, a, a mathematician, a cryptographer will tell you, oh my gosh, you know, this is vulnerable. It, 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 it's been broken because, you know, we've done some computational thing where we've, we've you know, for for in the case of SHA-1, we, we've caused a collision. Therefore, it's bad. You know, the, the, the cryptographic vulnerabilities associated, you know, with uh, SSL and TLS, you know, had to do with lots of math and, 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 and having the ability to crunch a lot of numbers to produce. Uh, uh, this was Renault's position. I didn't completely disagree with them. Uh, very little fruit, you know, fruit for the effort. Very little payoff. You know, you'd have to put all sorts of computational time in to get maybe one, uh, you know, payload, one data set, which in a PCI context might be one credit card. Is it even worthwhile? Um, the point that I always made to Renault was yes, but PCI says use strong cryptography based on NIST, NIST says bad, therefore don't we uh, uh, as a scan engine have a responsibility to tell our customers whether they're PCI or government who also has to abide by the NIST rules. This is bad simply because we say so. But at the end of the day, I agreed with Renault in that, yeah, but you know, the cryptography, the, the math involved, the, the number crunching, and the payload, the payout, is often yeah, it's a it's a little bit hypothetical. Nobody's really doing this. There's other ways to get to the data. Is the juice worth the squeeze? <laughs> yeah, pretty much. And, and you know, so a long-winded question, but basically, it's you know, how do you got? What's your guys' take on the types of vulnerabilities that are you know more theoretical in na- nature, which are often cryptographic in nature, but not all the time. But you know, a lot of planets have to be in, a, a, in alignment. A lot of conditions have to be just so. You know, how much do you take that into consideration in in terms of uh, risk prioritization? Yeah. So uh, a lot of times when uh, when I'm when I'm being asked about about uh, exactly similar questions to, to to what you said, I think we should take it to to the to the world of medicine. Like in in the, in the world of medicine, you have you have the traditional medicine, and traditional medicine you have symptoms. Uh, okay, so every time we saw the symptoms, we provided the same treatment. Then you have personalized medicine, which involved DNA in this in this process, and said, okay, this guy has a certain DNA characteristics that might imply that in the future he's going to have a certain disease, and also the treatment is going to be according to his DNA. Okay, so you both have the the symptoms and and the treatment both personalized for for uh, for the patient, uh, and and lastly you have uh, which is the most recent one. Lastly, you have the uh, the predictive medicine, and it's which said something pretty uh, dramatic and, and 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 drastic. It says we're not going to wait until you're going to have a certain illness or, or a certain disease. We're going to understand what is the likelihood of something getting, like some person getting uh, getting a certain disease, and then we're going to take proactive measures in order in order to reduce the chances of him getting this disease in the future. Uh, and and I think I think it flips back to to what you said. Uh, the the NIST uh, the NIST PCI it's like it's like the generic symptoms that they tell you. Listen, you have you have this you have this symptoms. You have to take this medicine. That's it. You, you need to do that. And I think that uh, that our platform like you can't go and reinvent the vulnerability assessment market without looking back to what like like without providing the traditional medicine. So, so what we do is that 
we're not only taking into account uh, the dynamic uh, execution uh, uh, properties of, of the software. We also we also have data that we bring from the outside. For example, which vulnerabilities uh, has an exploit, which vulnerabilities are recently uh, got uh, got hacked, etc. We also we also crafting our own data. For example, we have we have knowledge of which vulnerabilities are being trended on Twitter and things like this. So uh, as for your question, uh, it's the fact the fact that that we're doing all this next generation stuff doesn't mean that that, that we're saying okay the old world uh, is, is is no longer effective if if you like if you're disrupting uh, an, an existing market the expectation from you are pretty high like because you because we need to provide everything you had before and provide on top of the next generation but it doesn't mean that that we, we don't do what what you used to do before so we're providing both things yeah it's interesting in Stuxnet, there was an MD5 hash collision vulnerability that led to the creation of a code signing certificate. Was that the story? I don't remember all the exact details, but the uh, vulnerabilities that some of what you described, Jeff, were actually used in, in Stuxnet. So I guess, right. Michael, you know, the question is, in when you're prioritizing my vulnerabilities, do I need to tell you that I'm worried about nation-state attacks? Are you making the decision that I should be worried about nation-state attacks? Does that play into, into priority? Because these attacks do happen, but I think they're a lot more rare than, uh, you know, the Apache Tomcat vulnerability, for example, right? So at, at the end of the day, I think that uh, that hacking is is, is a matter of of, um, of of like it's it's a matter of ROI of, of return of investment. Uh, if someone is trying to hack your organization and the organization has a very dirty uh, cyber hygiene, it will be easier and simpler for him to to hack it. He will just do it. If if the organization is like you have the best locks and you have the best, uh, you have you have the best security measures, which which makes you a less sexy target for for a hacker. He would just move to the next one. I think this mm. is this is how most of the attacks looks like. In cases of state-sponsored attacks and 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 and, and things like this, uh, you, you know, in, in in Stuxnet, for example, the, the the operation was so complex and it didn't only involve like technical stuff. It also involved uh, like you know. Third-party uh, uh, vendors and 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 bring in the system when it's already uh, has some uh, some flaws inside. So, actually, like on on the one hand, we will help you uh, protect yourself from most of the uh, like most of the attacks, like most of the script kiddies that will just try to uh, to, to get a hold of, of the organization and, and and penetrate inside. But because we're doing all this uh, uh, binary analysis and 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 third-party uh, software vulnerability prediction, uh, we can also help you understand what threats uh, are inside software you have based on previous techniques. So for example, if we saw a certain technique previously, for example, what you said before, and we know to characterize, like we know to characterize uh, how the abused uh, API or abused uh, memory space looked like, we will also be able to look for uh, dissimilar targets, so-called, in other software. So we will mm. we will gotcha. provide you the cyber hygiene that that, that that will keep you safe from from the script kiddies. But on top of that, we also provide you a super intelligent and 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 next generation capabilities that will help you understand what is the risk in third-party software even before it's getting hacked. So. Yeah, it's it's reducing mm -hmm. your uh, your footprint and your attack surface so that you can make more intelligent decisions about, okay, now I am going to go, you know, fix those, uh, you know, hash collision vulnerabilities because I'm protected in these other areas. 
And now that's likely the attack, right? You're kind of like squeezing it down because the average everyday, you know, exploit paths uh, are, aren't available. And when you squeeze it down, now that's the stuff I, I should probably worry about too, right? So it's kind of that uh, building on the prioritization uh, on the remediation, right? And, and, and I, I think you're completely correct. And we had a discussion a few, a few days ago, uh, you and me, and, and which, which this is exactly what, what we said. We said security teams are no longer doing security. The, 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 they're doing a bunch of other stuff. They're doing the IT stuff. They're, they're doing uh, the, the running after uh, third-party vendor analysis reports and stuff and things like this. They don't really do security. And if, if, if you take this burden off them, like you're saying, okay, we, you're going to have an automated solution that is that's going to take care of of, of, of my, at least my, my internal uh, cyber hygiene, they can focus on other stuff. Like they, they can focus exactly on what you said. They, they can focus on, okay, we, ha we have this software that, that we bought from a third-party vendor that I have, I don't know anything about it, but I have this company Vicarious that can provide me a risk analysis report. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna start checking this, this third-party vendor. And, and if he has a components inside his binary software, uh, uh, that, that, that seems suspicious to me. I'm going to ask questions, uh, and uh, and that this I, I think I think that the operational uh, the, the operational challenge is 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 the bigger bigger one because you can't cope with everything that is going on. Like you have 300 vulnerabilities every, every week, you don't have enough human resources to do everything. Even if you have 15 people on on your security team, mm. so I I, I I think it's it's like the main manual labor intensive work that that is causing this process to be so hard. Yeah, and I really, when the we talk about organizations that are uh, very resilient to attacks, it's not just because they have a great security team. They have that, right? But their security team has figured out how to leverage the other resources in their organization to increase their security level, right? And, and this is where I see security going. I want us as security professionals to be less operational. I want the operations to be applying patches, to be using some of the same software, oh, yeah. right? And I want security to be doing security research and Sorry. risk analysis and all the other things that we don't have time for because our hands are in the operations because we have to, right? And I, I think Vicarious and, and other uh, solutions that I really like are really pushing that to the operations teams, right? I want my help desk. I want my network admins. I want my sysadmins that they're doing their job and security is part of it, right? And that puts less burden on the security team. So, so yeah, I'm, it's kind I'm of... Sitting, go ahead, Lee. So what I was thinking as um, I'm like trying to build a mental wiring diagram of, of what would what you're what you're offering. I love the idea of a operational group taking care of the patches. Uh, definitely, they're in the right spot to do it. But I was thinking, where do you sit with respect to tools I have today? Do you replace things? You're integrated. I know you're a cloud solution. I get that, and so that can give me great up-to-date feeds from the analysis you're doing for helping me make good decisions. But am I retiring other tools, or or, or, or are you partnering with them, driving them? What's what's the model? Yeah, so so that that's that's a good question. Uh, so we, we are going after the market of of uh, vulnerability. Like if 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 you take on, on a business perspective, okay, let's let's switch the hat from from this security professionals to, to business. Uh, you have like we're touching here in three different markets. We're touching on on the vulnerability management market. We're touching on the vulnerability prioritization market, also called the risk based uh, vulnerability management, uh, and we have parts of of uh, patch management. Uh, the vulnerability assessment market's worth uh, $6 billion, growing 50% a year. 
the privatization market is still a growing market worth around 200 million, grows 60% here, so it's still a blue ocean. And you have the patch management, uh, the patch management market, which is a pretty small one. It's like half billion dollar, does, doesn't grow in, in, a, in, a, in a very extensive way. Uh, so where we want to be is definitely on the vulnerability assessment, which is slowly shifting into vulnerability prioritization and remediation because uh, tools tools that are doing only vulnerability assessment can like they, they can justify their existence inside the, the organization security stack. Um, so uh, we we are we are trying to be uh, we are trying to take uh, the part of vulnerability assessment and vulnerability uh, prioritization. Uh, to us, uh, the last part, which is which is like we have three parts. We have the analysis part, we have the prioritization part, and we have the act part. Uh, the act part. So we have today, we have patching capabilities, in, in, like we have patch man, full patch management capabilities inside our agent. We have the patches, but we see much more uh, things that that are being added there. Uh, so along the way, we will definitely add more integrations. Uh, to the to the last part, the part of the act, uh, but for the analysis and, and the prioritization, this is the this is our uh, this is our holy grail. Like th this is where we are, and and afterwards we will add more and more integration that will help you remediate stuff. Awesome. Um, so as you mentioned, your agent, what platforms are you you on today? So uh, t today we're supporting all, all uh, flavors of, uh, of Linux. Uh, we're supporting uh, Windows uh, 7 and above. Uh, we're now, uh, by the end of the year, we're going to release also uh, a Mac OS X support. Uh, and we also have, uh, we also have uh, container support meaning that, that you, you, you can install. Like we have pre-built, uh, we have a, a, a build for uh, Docker containers uh, for the OS level. Uh, so we, we will be, we're trying to first cover everything that is managed and afterwards go, uh, to the device scanning and the network scanning part. Cool. Michael, the, you have, uh, um, you have some free resources, uh, on your website. Uh, have you made those, uh, public? Um, can you talk about those? Oh yes. Yeah. So, so we recently, we recently launched our, our research center. So, uh, uh the, the research center first includes all the CVE data. But more interesting than that, uh, one like uh, uh, one of our one of our main cores uh, uh, of of the system is the ability to understand how software is structured. So, for example, when we uh, when we install in a certain organization for a POC or or a trial, first thing we're going to do is is a full asset and software inventory. But we're not going to stop there. We're going to drill down into every software and understand where it resides on the disk. What are the resources? Uh, uh, what are the libraries, etc. Uh, and so some of that knowledge is also exists on the website. For example, you can go and, and search for Firefox or, or, or any other software and understand what is the software uh, structure, what is the ecosystem of it. And this uh, also draws out pretty in a, in a pretty good way the way we do our protection because uh, once you have the context of what is a software, it's much more easier to protect it because uh, at the end of the day, we're not trying to, you know, we're not an EDR or an EPP solution, which try to find all the bad guys on the computer. We're saying something that is that is pretty different. We're trying to understand what is the uh, uh, what is the structure of the app, and once we have the structure, then we're going to wrap around it our our uh, memory defense protection. 
but it, it's 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 not going to be just uh, uh, something that is going to analyze every kernel uh, level uh, kernel level activity that every executable is doing on the computer. We just identify what is like how the software looks like and then protect it there. So the website gives you a glance of how we do that uh, and shows you uh, uh, shows you like different uh, structure of, of software uh, that, that that we collected and, and analyzed. Outstanding. Jeff Lee, more questions for Michael? Oh, Jeff, did Not you questions have questions? Well, it was more of an observation. I, I think it's fascinating that more and more people are coming to the conclusion that you know, certain, certain functions that we traditionally lumped under the category of security are really not security by essence. They're really, you know, just the job of it operations and other groups. Uh, I, I, I find it fascinating that you've picked up on that. I, I gave a talk a couple years ago that, you know, based on the basic risk equation, uh, asked the question, all this stuff that, you know, 90% of this industry, which is vulnerability based fits into a specific uh, variable within a risk equation and security is another separate element or variable in the equation. So how can they be the same thing if they're completely different, you know, maybe a little bit too esoteric, but you got, you kind of fleshed it out a little bit, which I agree with the, I, I think the irony or the, 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 the conflict comes into play where, uh, you know, we, we talk to so many companies that are trying to tackle vulnerability management, vulnerability prioritization, and their tools and their their customers have traditionally been the security folks. Uh, how do I do have a question? How do you how do you push that into the hands of the not security people that that should be doing it preemptively so that security can move on to do other better, more fruitful things? Uh, you know, it, it's probably a marketing campaign. You know, that tries tries to redirect towards the the non security trained element. But you know, putting the tool into the right hands for the right purpose. Uh, that's a security function, but it's not. I, I find it fascinating and, and challenging, and good luck. <laughs> Thanks. Uh, yes, yeah, so, so I, I, I think that, that we need to divide the market into two kinds of, of, of organizations. Uh, the first organizations is organizations that has that had well-established uh, security teams and they have a well-established IT team. Sometimes they will even have a dedicated teams that are doing vulnerability assessment even vulnerability, even teams that are doing uh, uh, vulnerability prioritization, I can tell you that that some of the big some of the big organizations, some of the big enterprises have built tools, uh, have internally built tools in order to prioritize threats because uh, the, this this problem is is just is just so hard to fix because they have three teams somewhere. These teams are not even in the same continent. Uh, which one team is doing the patch management? One team is doing the uh, the vulnerability assessment, and you know a everyone is yelling. Like so, so who is who is who is yelling stronger, the, the the security or or the IT? So, on on the one hand, when you involve a big organization, that requires a political change. Like you need to understand that you need to tie it up either the CISO or the CSO or, or, or the CIO, whoever is politically stronger, tie them into the process and then make uh, a, a real change in, in the culture, which is hard. Like you completely correct, it's super hard. On the other hand, you have, you have organizations, let, let's call them uh, like the definition of, of a small and medium enterprises in Israel and, and use is pretty different. 
but let's call organizations from 500 endpoints to 5,000 endpoints or servers. Uh, these organizations, many times, most of the times they will have a vulnerability assessment tools. Uh, sometimes they will also have a patch management solution, but the the process is 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 not really as, as you expect to be. It's 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 a, a big mess. Sometimes uh, the IT is also do, like IT is in charge of security. They don't, they don't even have a CA. So so in this kind of organizations, I think that the value is is pretty immediate. Definitely, when you're uh, a self-serve cloud cloud environment platform, like you just go to the website, like sign up in two seconds, and then start start playing with some asset. Like we're like we we, we try to take. Uh, we tried to like we went on the hard way. Like we we tried to take the model of of Datadog and and this kind of companies and first developing a solution that is really really easy to onboard, really really easy to integrate, and then go uh, like to the big organization, which is which is very like which it's a very unique go to market strategy if you're a small Israeli startup because what most of the Israeli startups are doing is that they gonna they gonna raise like four or five million dollar get one or two big logos and then try to raise money. We, we did it in the opposite way and I think more more healthy way because once we will get, uh, w- once we will start having our, our, our enterprises and we're already POCing with them, we're already working with them. Once we will start ramping up with them, we will have a solution that, that already uh, has a very strong capabilities and very easy to operate. Interesting. <laughs> Awesome. Michael, thank you so much uh, for appearing on Paul's Security Weekly. Uh, folks that want to learn more can go to securityweekly.com forward slash vicarious. Michael, thanks again. Thank you. Thank you, Paul. And that will conclude this episode of Paul's Security Weekly. Thanks, everyone, for listening and watching. Over and out.